Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Address. What's that? A safe house in Paris. Why would I need a safe house in Paris? Should things at some point go terribly wrong, it's good to have a place to go. You know, for a cup of tea. My brothers. My sisters. The clock is ticking faster. My dream, we who live for truth, for love. The moment has come to take our rightful place in the world where we wizards were free. Join me. Or die. The wizarding and non-wizarding worlds have been at peace for over a century. Grindelwald wants to see that peace destroyed. You want me to hunt him down? To kill him? Dumbledore, why can't you go? I cannot move against Grindelwald. It has to be you. You don't suffer from motion sickness, see? I don't do well on boats. You'll be fine. Do you know why I admire you, Nick? You do not seek power. You simply ask, is the thing right? The time's coming when you're gonna have to pick a side. No, I don't do sides. What are you gonna do? I think it's nothing. Mute, you never met a monster you couldn't love. Let's take him. That's your brother? I think that might have been the best moment of my life. A year and a quarter ago, we were all geared up to cover and analyse Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Just hours beforehand, the creative team for the series, including Joe Rowling herself, voiced total support for the sensational actor Johnny Depp, whose presence on the cast of the first and second film was drawing controversy due to his involvement in a domestic abuse scandal. That fact more than soured the atmosphere for us at the time, very specifically because Joe Rowling penned a series of books that inspired more than one generation that young girls grew up reading and drawing their philosophical grounding from. The Harry Potter books champion kindness, friendship and bravery, standing up to bullies, oppression, prejudice and corruption. They abhor abuse and violence and take a very dim view on men who get away with terrible things. At the time, we had little solid information save for a distressing video that made Depp seem like an angry, violent, drunk abuser. And so Joe's endorsement of him at the time thus felt like a betrayal. We just wanted to leave the whole thing alone. Just let the legal shit play itself out, wait until everybody knew everything and it was all kind of out in the open and then... That would also hopefully coincide with the last Fantastic Beast film, maybe. 
we decided to wait until all of the uh, movies were out and we would cover all originally at the time said to be five of them in one big series much like the harry potter films which were recorded eight shows on in 2012 with the benefit of the fully unfolded mystery however we are doing film two tonight for three reasons one a great deal of what Sharon and I truly loved about Film 1 has now been undone by plot and character developments in Film 2, making it very difficult to cover in detail now, maybe ever. 2. Film 2 is such a disaster that there may not be a Film 5 or a Film 4, or Film 3 might be rewritten as a conclusion to just tie this whole mess up. So, if that happens over the next few years, it is worth everyone having a better idea as to why. This also suggests that by comparison to the carefully planned Russian doll of mysteries that the Potter books represent, this one is being written on the fly, certainly with a completely different sensibility regarding character growth. Ergo, the final unpacked story is not going to match, and our analyses must be different by design. Number three, I honestly haven't seen many really in-depth explorations as to what went on here. This world is very important to us, and this tenth film hurt to watch. So it feels like a service we can fulfill as fans of the books, bigger fans of the movies, including the first Fantastic Beast, that's me and Sharon. We understand filmmaking and structure and script writing, and we're not just going to shit all over everything. To help us focus and stay on point, we brought in one of our favourite guests and favourite people, Lauren Grieve from the Guillermo del Toro shows. Hello again, Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me. And I, I just wanted to say I appreciate how your recent podcast, you've really had a lot of people come on who like live the experience. Like you had a people of color for Get Out mm -hmm. and you had women for Captain Marvel. So for this one, you get a witch who is also a fantastic beast. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's all part of the plan. Exactly. You need representation. Now, the first thing that strikes me when I watch this second film is that instead of cutting straight to the Fantastic Beasts logo like in film one, they introduced the Magical World brand, a set of familiar wands with a clear symbolic import. Now, eight years on from the final Harry Potter film, this is a hard push to build something beyond that initial saga mapped out by Joe. One of the greatest weaknesses, though, of Crimes of Grindelwald is that it attempts to integrate itself just as hard into existing continuity, making it much more of a prequel than film one, which was a mostly unconnected romp. So I looked at the synopses on the internet ticker and thought, well, how can we boil this down? And it's a boiling down and like making things clear that is a lot less convoluted than the actual events of the film. So there may be people uh, listening now who saw the film and go, oh, that's what that was about. We'll see. But I tried to just, like, focus on the important things, trim away everything extraneous. So for those who haven't seen it, and for those who have and need a refresher, here is the synopsis. The dark wizard Grindelwald, after getting apprehended at the end of the last movie by the New York Ministry of Magic, breaks out of captivity thus undoing a key plot development in that film. Credence Barebone, who was killed at the end of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, turns out to be alive, thus undoing a key emotional beat in that film. Credence might be the only person who can kill Grindelwald or Dumbledore because of his over 9,000 wizard status. Shy zoologist Newt Scamander is recruited by the British Ministry of Magic to find Credence, 
Newt declines. Dumbledore asks him to do the same thing. Newt agrees. Dumbledore cannot fight Grindelwald because they made a blood pact some years ago, sealed in a magical artifact MacGuffin called a blood peg. Jacob and Queenie turn up at Newt's house. At the end of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Jacob, a muggle, had his memories of the events of the film, including his friendship with Newt and Queenie, erased with magic. Jacob tells him that the magic didn't work, thus undoing a key emotional beat in that film. Queenie, a formerly sweet, sensitive, unfailingly kind person, has been using a combination of memory charms and love potions on Jacob to convince him to elope with her and marry in contravention with American law, thus undoing a key emotional beat at the end of the first film. Jacob realises this, calls her crazy, and she runs away. Newt and Jacob travel to Paris to find Credence. Credence has been searching for his birth mother, which leads him to several dead ends. Previously, at the Ministry, Newt met Lita Lestrange, a former classmate who is in love with him, but married to his brother, Theseus. Newt meets Queenie's sister, Porpentina, whom he kindled a romance with in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Tina has, off-screen, misconstrued Lita's marriage to Theseus as a marriage to Newt, and now she is angry at him, thus undoing a key emotional beat in that film. Tina and Newt meet a man named Karma, who is hunting Credence, to kill him in revenge for the rape and abduction and death of his mother by Lita Lestrange's father. This rape and abduction led to the birth of a child named Corvus Lestrange, who apparently grew up to be Credence. Lita tells Karma and Credence that while that horrific sequence of events did take place, she switched her baby brother for another baby on the Titanic, who subsequently drowned, Credence is from another family entirely. <sighs> Grindelwald, who has been lurking around Paris, has his fanatical followers murder a family of muggles, including their infant son, so that he can stay at their house. He discusses the semi-genocide he has in store for non-magic users, or can't spells, if you will, leaving enough alive to be slaves to wizards, but mostly murdering all of us. Queenie looks for her sister for five minutes in Paris, but the only woman she asks for help is rude, unhelpful, and French. So she gives up and submits to despair, her ability to read minds overwhelming her in a crowded street. She is brought to Grindelwald and finds him charming and persuasive, seemingly blanking on his ghoulish appearance and intentions to murder roughly two billion people, which a mind reader should be able to read. Grindelwald holds a very large, very orderly and quiet hate rally for wizards, mostly purebloods known for their bigotry in the wizarding world, wherein he states that World War II is around the corner, so they may as well take over the planet. This would precipitate a war to prevent a war. Though he does not voice his intention to murder most humans, he is definitely pro-slavery. Some ministry officials turn up. Grindelwald sets the place on fire and says it's their fault asks everyone to leave and his closest followers to come with him. Queenie joins the man who hates and wants to kill most muggles because other wizards won't let her marry the muggle Jacob. Lita Lestrange claims fealty to Grindelwald temporarily, then attempts to shoot him in the back and is killed. Credence goes with Grindelwald too. Newt, who was present, has his Niffler, which is a small duck-billed platypus that steals things, steal the blood peg from Grindelwald. He brings this back to Dumbledore and it is established that this might allow the two to fight. In his Swiss castle in the mountains, Grindelwald tells Credence that Credence is Dumbledore's brother. The End 
I think it's kind of amazing that going through that whole exposition, there are beats of that that I totally missed in watching this, oh. a, like a time and a half, and even doing some like research on the back end, like like little little bits. Like it took me the entire movie, obviously, to figure out what in the world that little blood peg thing is, or <laughs> I didn't even know what it was called until you just said that. Yeah. But there's. This movie is so it bounces around so much. It's it was really hard for me to keep the thread the whole time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Especially since at one point I think it breaks off into like seven different like s- threads that are all kind of happening somewhat in sequence, but it's 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 very strange. I don't know. I do wonder if and this is entirely speculation on my part, but something that Joe said in some of the extra material that she really enjoyed writing this one because it was so complex and given that the vast majority of her experiences in writing novels which however complex your book gets your reader can always go back if there's anything that they missed it doesn't work that way with a script yeah. I mean, it's complex in the sense that it has a lot of interweaving narratives, but it's also just chaos. It's It's got, you know, like you could have a whole box of Lego and it's more complex when it's just loose, but it's harder to like get anything out of. But when you build it into something, then it's going to be a bit more understandable. Because I mean, at one point it was Newton Jacob were together for a big part of it until they split at Flamel's house, which again, like, why is this person even here? And then Teenie was separated, Queenie was separated, Grindelwald was doing other things, Dumbledore was doing things, and then Credence and Nagini are doing things. So that's six, maybe seven different threads that are all like just being cut in between. And it was just really hard for me to keep track of in the, la- in the back half of the film. So I have a list of the ten most problematic things about the film in reverse order of destructiveness. Destructiveness of this Lego model that you're talking about constructing here. Yeah. The first one that I'm going to say being the least troubling. Uh, Let's, oh yeah. Well, I was going to say, since like we've already established that you and Sharon are very, uh, you you like the first film a lot. Yeah. Uh, Maybe maybe like with reservations to use the parlance that we've developed. That's that's a good Um, one. Less than the original Harry Potter films, but still found it very enjoyable. Yeah. And I, I think... I think, I think to a degree, might... I might prefer it to say Chamber of Secrets or uh, or Philosopher's Stone. Hmm. But as soon as That's... it gets to Azkaban, then suddenly we're in Flavor Country. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Flavor Country. Um, <laughs> with the uh, – no, I'm not even going to make that joke. Um, but so I, I think it might be good for texture if I were to say how, sure. I, how I felt about the first movie. Because Absolutely, I'm definitely yeah, – yeah. I think I'm dislike but can see merits um, ultimately okay. because – Uh, And I'll be relatively quick, I think, and, you know, maybe there'll be a good conversation out of this. But I found the first film to be problematic on, like, two main – in two main ways. Um, The one and, like, the least which was more an aesthetic and texture because there was something so much less whimsical about the American, like, magic that we were witnessing Mm. than in the previous films and the other films. Um, And I found that like as I was really looking at the film, there's a lot of like clockwork imagery and a lot of like industrial imagery related to um, the American style magic, especially like in the Ministry of Magic, everything is like clockwork and gears, which is like 
neat, but it also ultimately makes it kind of like more machine-like, which is, I guess, appropriate for America turn of the century. But at the same time, it removes some of that that whimsy. And also, none of the Americans ever say the name of the spell they're casting. Mm-hmm. And only in that first film, only Newt is the one who speaks like the words. And there's something like simple and whimsical and like just... I don't know, like that it takes you more into that world somehow. And I mean, on that note, a lot of the Americans basically just use their wands like guns that shoot little magic bullets mm. more than anything else, which I just found like so much less imaginative. Well, I just on on that point, I think saying the spell has the effect of really creating an intent, especially when you get into things like Avada Kedavra. It's it's the the person casting it for the most part will spit it out with real venom, which means that it gives that spell more oomph, even though all you're really seeing is green light show. Yeah. Because even in even in the old films, like when when Voldemort, like the biggest baddest ass wizard ever, is casting it, he still puts words to that, you know. And, and there's just so much oomph behind him saying the Avada Kedavra. Mm. And in in these films, people throw that spell around kind of a lot, and it's just kind of like off screen or just doesn't have the impact that it did in the in the original films in a way that like kind of took me out of it a little bit just because it didn't quite feel like the same like fantasy texture and then add to that a lot of the uh, the blocking is kind of bland and a lot of the color palettes i found really muted in a way that i was just kind of like it was like not much for my eyes to really like latch on to um but my so that's like my big thing is like the texture and the aesthetics on on that end but there's also something i found problematic because as I was watching that first film, I actually found that I kind of felt for Credence a lot, but not so much – like I identified with Credence a little bit. I mean like you know, a, a young child who is uh, – has some kind of difference inside that is being stifled by the culture and the family that he finds himself in, subject to the abuse of both family and like – being taken advantage of of like an older man like it's very easy to read like an lgbt narrative into credence's like arc and instead of like doing anything with that it like everybody just kind of treats him terribly except for newt and teeny and in the end he gets gunned down for like having like you know basically you have this like secret the secret part of you that you can't let out and you you punch it down until it just comes out in like the most destructive and self-destructive way Mm -hmm. and there's so much texture to that that i can like see like this this trans narrative this gay narrative especially a gay narrative that i can really like relate to but in the end like the final thing is well, we, you know, society can't suffer him to live, so he has to die. Mm, yeah. and, and, it, mm. and Newt and Teeny are effectively trying to find a way to talk him down to avoid that having to happen. And that makes that final uh, loss of that attempt a really powerful emotional punch, which was one of the reasons why when I suddenly realised that he was back again, but it's done so without ceremony, 
that mm-hmm. it's like with a hand wave. Yeah. Like, exactly. Oh, did you know he's still oh, alive? He's still alive. Whoa. Uh, where did that come from? Which, as with a lot of things that I mentioned above, steps really hard on the narrative mm. of that. Actually, that was one of the beats that I said was a huge emotional beat. Uh, not so much a plot point. It's it, it's not actually key to the overall Wizarding World plot in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them that Credence lives. That's It's a sad little story and one that is supposed to resonate and mean something. So then going, oh, no, he's still alive and he's still over 9,000 and it's all about the boy. Suddenly, all of that becomes like a, a footnote. Everything that was powerful about that story becomes just, well, that was just his introduction. Yeah. And even in the end of the film, the first film, there is a a shot of Newt watching like the last wisp of the Obscurial flying away that you can interpret as, oh, okay, well, some part of him got away and he's able to grow back from that. But that feels like such... It like spits in the face of the kind of rules and the of like the magical world that we've seen and experienced up to this point. And it in that first film, I'm pretty sure it was shot to see, like you know you see the final wisps of this innocent person like flowing away from us. But it's now being retrospectively, oh no, that was him getting away. And it's like mm. really, mm. really. Yeah. And on that note, I found that a lot of the the rules of the magic world were also like. Problematic, like they didn't make sense going into the second film either, even compared to the first film, which also didn't make sense compared to the old films, which is kind of a problem when you've got some kind of cinematic universe like this. Like there's so much context and there's so much history, even though it's technically later chronologically, that people are bringing to it. And whenever things don't act the way, like even something as simple as just not vocalizing the spells, like feel so strange. Um, by the world that they set up, so that so that's where I sit with the first movie. I found a lot. I found some stuff to be good. I, I guess I should speak to some of the good things. I thought that Jacob was a lot of fun, and that he worked really well as like an audience insert character. I really liked uh, Queenie. She kind of reminded me of like a you know like a nineteen twenties kind of um, uh, flapper kind of girl, which I, I really appreciated. And the fact that she actually gets like a really good scene of helping them break out of the ministry of magic. Um, I thought Newt's kind of an incredible representation of like an incredibly positive representation of autistic behavior. I mean, like he's clearly on the spectrum somewhere and like all of his physical mannerisms and the way that he acts. Um, I thought that was really good. And some of the magical beasts I found to be, uh, neat or at least like imaginative i really like the giant bird dragon thing at the end it was kind of cute i kind of want one but um that's those are kind of like the good things i can say about the first movie so I'm, i'm definitely in like a dislike but can see some merits okay so i have a list of the 10 most problematic things about the film in reverse order of destructiveness Uh, The first one that I'm going to say being the least troubling. Uh, Let's go to each one in turn. I'll say my piece and then we can look at that particular element. Sharon and Lauren, once that list is done, feel free to mention anything that hasn't been put on the table. Okay. After that, I have 10 things that by comparison feel like small, faint little badges of almost hidden quality. And then when we've talked about the good things, we can perhaps speculate on what they might do in the future to fix this broken series as it currently stands it's important to note that there was a surprisingly muted response to this film if you compare it to the livid ongoing rageathon of star wars and we can maybe muster a few guesses as to why as we go 
Okay, so uh, number 10 of the problematic things, and least impactful, really, weirdly forgetful of spell import. I think you just kind of mentioned this there, uh, uh, Lauren, but um, Animagus Maledictus. Okay, Nagini, let's not talk about Nagini herself yet, but... um, Jenny Nicholson did a list of uh, stuff that was dumb about this film, and one of them is that it's very difficult to imagine a wizard circus when there's truly miraculous things in the wizarding world, and just gawking at creatures isn't really going to be enough. And specifically, I said to Lyra that um, the way that Joe uh, described what a maledictus was on the um, extras was that it's like an animagus, only one that's slowly turning into that creature and will lose their humanity. But visually speaking, as Jenny Jenny said, they're the same thing as an animagus. Like a, 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 a witch who can turn into a snake. All you have to do is like point to a witch who can turn into a snake and go, that's a maledictus. And everyone goes, whoa, we'll believe you on that one. And then she turns into a snake and everyone goes, yep, that's a witch turning into a snake. All right, my aunt can do that. Honestly, like, it, it's the first thing we see in Harry Potter is McGonagall turning from a cat into a person. It, actually, no, the first thing is the light put out a thing that Dumbledore does. The, but the first character we see is McGonagall as a cat before we see McGonagall as a person. Turning into an animal in the wizarding world isn't miraculous. But that does lead tangentially on to another aspect regarding Nagini. We'll get to that in a bit, but this is just about the spells. The Obliviate on Jacob. Now, I think they related it to some sort of potion, like um, uh, in the original Fantastic Beast, Newt says that their tears can get rid of memories. And he's talking about um, his... Who, is it the uh, Thunderbird? No, it's the... Um, it's like the flying death thing. It's the, the weird kind of oh, Zerg-like... Festival. No, not the Thestral. The Thestrals are the horse things. Okay. Um, it's like the swooping venom or something like that. It has like a really silly name, like straightforward oh, yeah. name that's like not imaginative at all. Okay. Swo- swooping evil. Swooping, swooping evil. evil, that's the one. And it's tears can uh, can get rid of memories. It's, it's venom, actually. He was like, it's he venom. milks it. Yeah. He milks the venom whenever he goes into the that's suitcase it. the first that's time. The one. And in the end, he ends up giving that to his Thunderbird who causes a great big rain shower. Now, I almost don't want to talk about that end bit of Fantastic Beasts Somewhere to Find Them in case we ever do cover Fantastic Beasts Somewhere to Find Them. It's bobbins. I like that film a lot, but the actual mechanics of what's going on there, the rain makes your bad memories go away. Oh, okay. So if you're inside, well, uh, I guess like the condensation probably gets to you and your bad memories go away. Okay. So everyone who was standing in the awning watching Jacob was also breathing that in. No. Okay, so how does it fucking work then? Because it seems like it does one thing to some people, one thing to some other people, and it works exactly how the narrative requires it to. It's absolute bobbins. And Jacob does forget everything that's happened to him. It's a really great moment. So when he then comes back and goes, ah, they got rid of only only the bad memories. Bullshit! Bullshit! Because he doesn't know who Newt is when Newt turns up and they swap suitcases again. Otherwise he go, Newt! The moment he sees him, he doesn't remember him. They're fucking liars! He doesn't know who Queenie is when she turns up at the bakery. Sorry, I'm screaming there, but... Yeah, no, he doesn't know who Queenie is. Of course he'd remember her most of all. Absolute shit. All you had to do was say, 
Queenie told me about everything that happened. You, you knew I've heard so much about you, buddy. That that would have been fine. That would have been fine. Queenie's told him about everything. We assumed that was going to happen. They actually made up a line that makes less sense than just what we saw. Mm-hmm. There's there's a little bit. At this the is end. the tenth and least important one. <laughs> <laughs> This there's is all a, the forgivable your, shit. Your voice is going to get higher and higher as we go along, <laughs> isn't it? There's a little bit at the end of the first film where he's making baked goods that look like the Fantastic Beasts. Yeah, and people are like, suggests, where do you get yeah, this? Yeah, he's got some of these memories. Like, that suggests that some of it's still there. Mm-hmm. little like, like he dreams about down. it. Deep, yes. deep down. And then yeah. all he had to do was say, you know what, I was, I was, uh, I was making these little... Uh, uh, beastie cupcakes and uh, uh, Queenie came along and, he, and she told me exactly what these were. By the way, side note, I really love Jacob and Dan Fogler. He is a lovely character and oh, yeah. he was one of the things I loved the most about that first film. So what happens to him in this is a pile of dog shit. Mm-hmm. They, they, they mismanage that on like so many different fronts because in the first movie, the fact that he kind of like smiles at Queenie in a way that's like half recognition in a way that's kind of like, oh, even with his memory obliviated, like there's still this attraction that's like deeper than that. And they can kind of start over like there. There's like a hope there in that first film, even though, you know, the like like you were saying, the Venom stuff doesn't make any sense. I mean, there are wizards out there in trench coats, like rebuilding the the buildings. And it's like, are they being oblivious? What's going on? Are their hats protecting them? Is that how that works? Um, are wizards just immune to this magical creature that they specifically kill because it is too venomous for wizards to worry about? <laughs> like, what? Um, but then if they had used it in such a way in the, the second film where Queenie, like, oh, yeah, Queenie told me all about this and then only told him the good memories kind of thing, then that would lean more into Queenie, like, gaslighting him. Bingo. Which would at least give more, like, it would show a harsher side to Queenie, which I don't think is necessarily appropriate, Mm -hmm. and I really don't like that they went with, but if they were going to do it, fucking go for it, you know? The average person going into the cinema thought that the memory charm thing at the end was Obliviate. And the last time we saw that being done in a really powerful way was Hermione at the beginning of Deathly Hallows 1, when she points her wand at her parents and says, Obliviate and such a good scene, starts to disappear from their pictures. And so when Jacob says, it only gets rid of bad memories, that makes the average person go, that's not how Obliviate works. Now, even if they're wrong, and it's actually the the venom of this fucking creature that everyone's forgotten, it still feels like a cheat. Well, and more to the point, Newt even says, it has very powerful, obliviative properties. Yeah. And so, like, they specifically... Obliviate spell. Yeah. Yeah, they say it right there. And this is, I'm also going to throw this in as at number 10, the sudden inclusion of Minerva McGonagall, uh, according to the Potter wiki, upset a lot of Potterheads who had been officially told that she was a lot younger. Uh, uh, this was all done in a hand-wavy dismissive fashion rather than a clear attempt to challenge our established understanding. So it's not like, oh, you thought McGonagall was this age. She's actually not. Let us explain just with a little conversation with her. She's not even really featured on screen. She's standing at the back so that you can't see her that much. Mm. Yeah, this is a, a really sharp example, actually, of the this one feeling a lot more prequely mm-hmm. than the first one, because as you said, the first one is set in the world, and there are some uh, s- 
story links that you know are going to turn up later. Yeah. But with this one, it's like they've gone way further out of their way to attach things. Well, they, they've said in giant capital letters, IMPORTANT! Mm. Yeah. And and we've seen with the Star Wars prequels how that cannot work if you're not being really careful. You you need to start with a good story first and foremost and then you work out ways that you can link it to your future stories or or just make mm. it very clear that it's set in the same place. I was just I was just thinking, I was just about to say that this actually now we're talking about it reminds me a lot of Rogue One, where there were a lot of scenes and a lot of things that were in there just so people who had seen the previous films would go, Oh hey, I remember that. Like there's I understood that reference. (laughs) I understood that reference. Yeah. There's Thestrals pulling the carriage at the beginning. Is there any reason for them to be Thestrals? No. Did I enjoy seeing Thestrals because they're one of my favorite Fantastic Beasts? Absolutely. Um, like they go to Flamel's house, the guy who made the Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone, if you're less cultured, and um, <laughs> and uh, like he has no part to play. Like, like other than oh, I remember that name. Oh, I got that reference. Like there were so, so he's many like Doctor little- Evazan and Ponda Baba turning up and going, he doesn't like you for no reason at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's. It's kind of like in the beginning of Rogue One where they like he yeah it just ah it makes me so angry sorry <laughs> when he opens the safe and the the philosopher's stone is in the safe Lyra went oh that's the philosopher's stone so there you go that's obviously what mm. they were aiming for or it's like yeah Lyra her her mouth dropped she was like totally entranced by that and she was uh, chuffed but uh, it, it's kind of like uh, the Star Wars special edition from 1996 uh, during the uh, redone Jabba scene they also stuck in Boba Fett who wasn't around when they did the original Star Wars just so dorks could go mom Mom, that's Boba Fett! Yeah, he doesn't do anything. Yeah. He's just there. He actually stops and, I- and, like, spikes the camera in a kind of, like, <laughs> like Eddie Murphy in Trading Places. Uh, and that's what I felt McGonagall was there for. Like, I don't know any of the specific age of her or anything, yeah. even though this is 1927 and it was a flashback from there, so she'd have to be over 100 years old or something. Yeah. But... I, I love Professor McGonagall. I mean, a big part of my personal aesthetic has really like leaned into her. I'm like oh, yeah. somewhere between like which like Evil Witch of the West and like Professor McGonagall, depending on the day. So like I, my students have actually been like, actually, you're pulling off a young McGonagall right now, and I'm like, nice. yes, nice. perfect. <laughs> I have achieved success. So you have to start me, speaking like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> I can't do Scottish accents. I can't do any accents except my own. Oh, but... it's probably for the best. Oh, God. oh, that sounded like Doubtfire. Oh, God. <laughs> oh dear. No. Oh, oh you'd murder the Scottish, the Isle of Skye accent. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, we have to talk about any film but this one. But yeah. Any um, excuse. Yeah, like, I, I enjoyed seeing her just because I'm like, oh, hey, I know that character. I like that character. She has no reason to be here. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, wow, Dumbledore's like young and sexy what's that all about and mm-hmm. I, I do appreciate that this film is kind of like Dumbledore Fox and that's, <laughs> like that that's you know that's a really important thing to get across absolutely it's uh, terrible taste man, but but yeah the uh yeah that's true actually I, you as uh, Grindelwald when he was younger looked a little bit more alluring but uh, now he's this sort of um albino gonk so, but yeah, the McGonagall thing, like, there was a whole established history for Professor McGonagall with years and things online. And the problem is, when you tell fans 
conflicting information in the sacred texts, a.k.a. the films, things which actually have precedence over, say, Pottermore, they then have to go to absurd lengths to create a reason why these two things can happen and, and without without conflicting. So there would be crazy shit that would happen during uh, when um, the X-Men uh, uh, would contradict themselves all the time in the, uh, the movies. And then when uh, it said things like nine years later on uh, um, Spider-Man Homecoming and everyone was like, hold on a second, Vision said in Civil War and they would try to work out ways to jury rig uh, an explanation. And it just sent a lot of Potterheads in to a bit of a tease to try to explain why a Professor McGonagall was there. And a lot of them were just saying, it's McGonagall's mum, clearly. And that probably holds more water than any other possible <laughs> theory because there's no... Oh, he does call her Minerva. So, like, mm. she's Minerva Junior. Anyway. Also, and this is still number 10, Grindelwald wanders around the streets of Paris in broad daylight looking as weird as he does. An albino with one pale eye. No apologies potion, no invisibility charm, which itself calls into question invisibility cloaks, by the way. I was thinking about it. Like, if you can make yourself invisible, and some wizards do, why are invisibility cloaks so valued? tumbleweeds yeah it's because she came up with invisibility cloaks first and then had to have invisibility spells second anyway number nine bringing credence back and confusing what makes his story powerful in film one we've actually pretty much covered this one a tragic story about familial abuse and a radicalized because that's another aspect to it. it's not just that he uh, feels like he um can't show this side of himself he's being He's fallen in with a bad guy uh, who is getting him to act upon his anger in ver- in violent ways. And he's an angry, fearful, tragic young man. And that felt weirdly relevant. And one of the things I really liked about Credence is there's several readings on his personality and what he's holding back that actually apply to loads of different existing platforms of power in real life. You could get religion in there as well. You can read any kind of a narrative into that. Like I was talking about the LGBT, but you can do like a religion thing. Anything that makes a person like an outcast to their immediate family or their immediate like circle and then taken in and easily abused by people who want to take advantage of them. Mm. Um, There's, there's, a ton of different things. It's going to be different for every person. For me, it was an LGBT narrative because of who I am. Yeah. Uh, I read it as an LGBT narrative as well, uh, simply because um, Ezra Miller is LGBT. Uh, watching him with um, the girl who plays Luna in one of the uh, extras, they're both sort of watching clips from the film. And Luna talks about the romance between uh, Dumbledore and um, Grindelwald. And he reacted extremely uh, warmly to her, at least for mentioning this. Because he's like, oh, finally I get to nerd out about this particular aspect of it. And they're, hmm. they're both adorable together. Yeah, Ezra Miller is fantastic. And the one the one good thing about um, Grindelwald walking through the streets of Paris uh, is he has really good shoes. Oh, yeah, like, I just great boots. Really, I just really wanted those boots. They have, like, a lift on them, which I was like, wow, there's, like, wedge heels. Is that – oh, that's Grindelwald. That's unexpected, but that sh- – <laughs> Shows where my attention was at, I guess. Costume designer Colleen Atwood uh, was talking about how she's always loved Bavarian clothing. And I, I, she's such a pro that I'm like, you know what? I believe you, Colleen. I, I, that, that seems like an odd thing for, for, for a person to say. But being a costume designer, it makes perfect sense coming from you. And looking at Grindelwald's outfit, especially when he turns up at the rally at the end, I like absolutely everything on it, just up to the neck. And then just like everything above the neck, just really problematic. Number eight. 
Johnny Depp and Grindelwald in general. He is this awkward, dull, contemptible character, a fraction of the screen presence of Rafe Fiennes Voldemort. But Depp's presence is continuously problematic. Uh, I recently saw him exonerated for apparently not abusing his spouse Amber Heard, or at least he has now claimed a countersuit that he didn't abuse his spouse Amber Heard, uh, the woman you uh, may have recently seen in Aquaman. Uh, and the uh, the source quoting him on this uh, claimed that, in fact, she abused him. Now, whether that is true or not, the take-home from genuinely wretched people is to not believe women who claim to have been abused because they could just as easily be trying to viciously ruin a man's life. Now, this makes seeing Depp now, whether he likes it or not, as a poster child for this mentality on screen, it's chilling me to the bone and not in a good way. Even if this one's entirely on Amber, even if he's absolutely innocent, even if everything he's saying is absolutely correct, he's fueling terrible men. The, the thing that bothered me the most about Grindelwald, at least as a character in the film, not to steal it and jump and, and run with it a little bit, but he, he's said to be this incredibly charismatic, persuasive individual. And all of the scenes where we see him trying to do that, he is so bad. He's very flat and he terrible really at is. it. Yep. Yeah. Like and I said, the, he's dull. Yeah. And at the end, the only reason that he is able to convince uh, Credence to like like – kind of go along with him is he goes to Queenie and he's just like, hey, Queenie, what is, like, what's he thinking? Like, what should I say kind of thing? And she's like, you're supposed to be the master manipulator, man. Get in there. What are you doing? <laughs> I have need of you, Queenie. We're all really good at me reading minds. Read mine? Oh, no, no, don't read mine. Uh, honestly, I expect at some point, because I'm going to talk about this regarding the whole Queenie thing, that she's going to claim some Palpatine level of, oh, he can't have his mind read. He's too powerful. He's over 9,000. Yeah. Just like Credence, uh, which means that he's immune to Queenie, which would suggest that when she reads his mind, she should go, just blank, nothing, or just he's thinking about the weather or eating a bagel. Um. <laughs> well, in, in the original films, I mean, there is a dedicated form of magic that is against legitimacy. Legilimans. Yeah, like there's a whole thing about like, Discipline oh, well, maybe- your mind. Yeah, you know, the whole, like, point and arc of the sixth film. Uh, or is it the sixth film? Yeah. Um, fifth. But, like... Uh, fifth's fifth, the yeah. one where Dumbledore's trying to avoid Harry all the time. That's right. Look yeah, at yeah. me! But it's just the idea that, like, we have this established means of confounding that exact magic. I mean, they even call out that she just has an innate talent for that particular magic to the point where it is innate to her being. Mm. But also in the first film, they talk about how she's really not able to hear people's thoughts if they're in a different accent, let alone language, which makes the whole scene in Paris where she's overcome by everybody else's thoughts, which are mostly in French, mm -hmm. like, and that she has therefore already been established as being like not able to hear them as well. And then also the fact that like she's a grown ass woman living in like New York and was in London, yeah. and then it took going to Paris to be around enough people to be overwhelmed by that. Excuse me, like I don't know. It just seems very strange to me. I do. Anybody, know. Uh, if you're super hypersensitive and you live in a crowded city, you have coping mechanisms, and it doesn't make any sense that she doesn't, which makes her a very poorly written character now. Now, mm -hmm. not before. Now. Yes.
And 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 it it hurts the retrospective, which is really one of the biggest crimes of this film. That's the biggest crime of Grindelwald is making <laughs> the first film even like a little bit poorer. Uh, it, it it makes it a lot poorer because we used to love it, and now we're not so sure. We haven't seen it since, but yeah. uh, but I think in the in the first one, I interpreted Queenie's hanging out at the apartment most of the time as just being a she stays home a lot because going outside does overwhelm her, but. Then, as you say, why was she able to move around relatively easily until she got to a place where she couldn't understand everything? The Queenie situation is my number two on this, so let's come back to her in a second. We're still talking about Grindelwald. I saw David Heyman say that Voldemort was was shit and nothing compared to uh, Grindelwald, that Grindelwald was so much more complex, and that Grindelwald believes he's right. Voldemort believes he's right. The people who follow Voldemort are very much swept up in what he's saying. They're all purebloods. They're all bigots. They all believe this, you're better than everyone else, bullshit. And that belief is something they clutch onto because deep down they know they're wrong and that society won't let them have their way unless they force it. Grindelwald is exactly the same, only with an additional layer of artifice, making him less authentic. The major difference between the two of them is that Grindelwald wants to kill most humans and enslave them and says otherwise. That, to me, does not suggest that he believes what he's doing is righteous. That, to me, makes me feel like he knows what he's doing needs to be softened and softened and softened, Mm -hmm. and he lacks the courage of his convictions. It would have been so fascinating if he had been like a really well done Marvel villain, like uh, a Killmonger, who you're like, you know what, this guy's got a point. Like, uh, or an Eric Lenscher, like someone who would uh, witness tragedy uh, and, and had that meted on him and was so full of rage, but just tempered it into this really clear worldview that was persuasive to those around him and thus persuasive to us. Instead, we get told by the cast and crew that he's so persuasive and we sit and watch the film and it never happens. We never see it happen. And that's a real We see the after effects of it. Exactly. But we but don't it see make any sense it happen in a way stage. that's convincing. Yeah. He's not a tragic figure or a force of nature. He's not a true believer. He's a lying, manipulative worm. And there's nowhere near enough of a character study here to make this a study on the rise of the alt-right. When Voldemort does his most terrible things, it's very clear that he is furious, he is angry. And the nicest person, the kindest person, if they are angry, can think and say some horrible things. And it's it's that upswell of righteous fury that can drive you to do that. But it's brief, it doesn't last, and you don't consciously manipulate people through anger. That takes something else. That takes something to have been tempered. And if you're going to make that villain multi-layered and complex and uh, and someone that, that the audience can look at and think, well, okay, yeah, I can understand why people would follow him and, and listen to him. We have to infer that it's because some of the things he's saying off screen are connecting with some of the things that those people are thinking off screen. <laughs> so it, it, it doesn't Trust me, you it don't happened. see it come together. And it, it kind of felt a little bit like 
They didn't want to have him actually saying things that you could think, oh, actually, he's got a point because he's a Nazi. Yeah, because then stage, you get a whole bunch of Thanos then, was right stuff. You're then stuff. going, uh, hang on a minute, there's no real way that we can present his argument in such a way that the audience will respond to. Yeah. More on that in a bit, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, they completely and utterly befouled that aspect of things. Honestly, Voldemort, Voldemort, you're not supposed to say the T, is a more appropriate villain for this era that we are currently living in than Grindelwald. Mm. Joe actually sat down and said, you know, these people, they, they all respond to being rejected and they believe they're righteous too. That is so dangerously close to, well, you know... Both sides. But you, again, because you don't see it, it, it does seem like they don't want to put that across. But when you're trying to make a villain multifaceted, that comes from backstory. That comes from motivation. And we don't really see any of Grindelwald. We get, Grindelwald is never vulnerable. No. He never opens up. No. And we had so much opportunity because this is supposed to be about Dumbledore and Grindelwald and they never meet. There was all this opportunity. There was all this ground. And they spent so much time fucking around with who the hell is Credence. It doesn't matter. Everything in your movie hangs on Grindelwald. Everything. And they never convince. And honestly, this should be way higher up down the list. I'm just honing in on the fact that seeing Johnny Depp on screen makes me deeply uncomfortable and not in a good way. Seeing, I can... Touch you now, boy! In Goblet of Fire made me deeply uncomfortable, but in a thrilled way. This just makes me go, ugh, it's like a maggot. I want it to get away. Just, just this horrible thing. Next one. Far too many characters in general. All of them claiming a stake in proceedings. So few of them actually engaging. So here's a list. Newt, Teeny, Queenie, Jacob, Lita... Theseus, Dumbledore, Grindelwald, Credence, Nagini, Yusuf, Spielman, Grimson, Irma, Nicholas Flamel, Rosier, Abernathy, and the Bucket Man. Now, obviously, the Bucket Man doesn't really count, but everyone else is handled with the kind of, ah, remember this character, they're very important. Flamel, in particular, is such a strange inclusion. He turns up, and as you said, Lauren, he, he aids the group briefly and then comes back at the end to help kill a monster. And Nagini's characterization poses so many more questions than it answers. Joe has claimed, oh yeah, well, I, honestly, I thought of the Nagini thing years ago, years and years and years ago. She's based on Indonesian snake demons. Yeah, that there's a clue in the name. Naga was to do with the, the snake demons. And so she was always a Korean woman. Was she? Was she? Uh, Even if she was... Even if she was, why did you then make Nagini fucking flesh-crawling the whole way through in a book series you were never going to go back to? I mean, this is the same woman that decided to go back and be like, before they installed bathrooms, they just pooped on the floor. Yeah. So, I, <laughs> mean, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a joke now. The whole Joe Rowling says that Dobby <laughs> fucks, but he can't come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that that's not terribly far off from actual tweets that she's made yeah. is like... <clears throat> 
just so it's, weird. Someone else made these kind of claims, and it's George Lucas. He claimed he, he claimed at times, oh yeah, Vader was always Luke's father. That's why Vader means Vader means father in German. He wasn't. If you go back and read the original scripts, he totally fucking wasn't. If you go back and read the original treatments, he absolutely wasn't. That was something that came about during the writing of The Empire Strikes Back. It, you know what? It's fine for Joe to claim these things. Here's the thing. She said, and and Nagini was always this Korean woman. We finally got the chance to actually show this. And it's like, okay, what are you going to do with this? Absolutely nothing. Nagini is there. She's a woman. She's a snake. Then she's a woman again. And she follows Credence around, never says or does anything, and then disappears at the end uh, with the good guys. And like she's sort of in the good guy team now, question mark? There's, there's actually one moment of interaction between the two of them that really kind of crapped on what characterization was oh, this the deleted scene her. it wasn't in the actual it's not theatrical in the final version cut, but yeah there's a deleted scene where the two of them after their escape are sitting on a roof looking over the city nagini asks credence to turn into the obscurial mm-hmm. and there's kind of a little bit of a hint of a you can you're away from them now you can be yourself you can be free but the way she stands there and watches him, it's almost like she wants him to do it because she finds it beautiful. This is a woman who has been used in a circus to turn into the things she turns into for people to gawk at. It just felt really unlikely that she would then demand someone she care about do the same thing for her. It's a very shallow and dangerously pitched reading for uh the decision to be oh no no she wants him to turn into this thing that he hates and fears because uh, she feels that it's beautiful and he might feel that way about the snake maybe but they never discuss it mm, yeah and again like there's a an abundance of material not discussed which would actually have made everything better and richer in general mm. And as I said before, that the huge amount of characters, one of the last posters for this is Grindelwald standing with his back to us because you don't want to put Johnny Depp front and center on a poster. He lost his Jack Sparrow gig because of the lawsuit, and that's why he countersued. He said, you've taken away $50 million worth of Jack Sparrow gigs. He's facing everyone in the film. And one of the first, like the first like production photo we were sent was just the cast all lined up, and there were loads of them. And it was like, we've made up for quality of characters with sheer volume of characters which is going to keep throwing people at the screen until you're happy and honestly when i watched it the first time i was not like super angry i was just like sort of watching it like with my like a a wrinkled frown just trying to keep track of everything and going okay 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 and just like giving everything the benefit of the doubt going hopefully by the end this will all pan itself out i wasn't angry the first time i saw it i and i was sad the second time i saw it and then afterwards i was furious because Sharon had finally seen it on Blu-ray and I realised that all of these things I'd been feeling for all of this time weren't going to change and actually had gotten a lot worse the second time I saw it. But I was aware while I was watching it, the average person's going to be watching going, what the fuck is going on? Who is this person now? <laughs> yeah, and Nagini in particular is such like wasted potential, yeah. right? Because they could have done it where because of the maledictus, whatever's going on, she's actually afraid of becoming a snake. And the fact that she's like in this 
you know, essentially the sideshow act doing that, but like showing her being afraid of having to do it because someday she's not going to be able to turn back. And then using that as a means of exploring how Credence feels about the Obscurus and like, like showing that kind of bonding, that kind of character growth. But instead they decided, oh no, hey, you remember the snake, right? Well, this is the snake, but not yet. And and it, instead of doing it as like a character piece, instead of using it as texture, they use it for a callback. Yeah, and also it, it's uh, it's. I'm going to talk about inclusivity later, but uh, the, it just seems far less like we wanted Nagini to be a woman, and far more like fuck, we need an Asian. <laughs> um um um. Oh, you know who could be an Asian. I had this idea a while back that Nagini was actually a woman. Maybe she did. And 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 that could be her. Okay, right. So she's in the film. Could we write some scenes for her? Oh, I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. And they never did. Mm-mm. She's just there to fulfill a racial quota to make it seem more diverse. Because the Potter films have been historically very fucking white. And they are now somewhat trying to address that. We'll come to that in a bit. But just that, that that feels far more for me like the reason that Nagini's here as a woman and that she's Korean for all of the good that does. Did, Korean people, did you feel seen? Well, it's, it, it, it was an Indonesian demon. The Naga. Yeah. Right. So get and an a, Indonesian a Burmese, actress. And a Burmese python. So maybe have a Burmese person instead. <sighs> anyway. Uh, the next one, a general soap opera style that cheapens what was previously a rich tapestry of mystery, carefully planned and meted out over ten years. This feels rushed, and it suffers greatly as a result. Characters returning from the dead off-screen with a hurried non-explanation. Character returning from amnesia with a hand wave. Misunderstanding over a magazine article leading to jealousy. These are soap opera moves, and they're beneath the evolving, maturing, wizarding world. Joe said, I'm so happy to finally be doing adults. And the way that she's expressed, now I'm writing adults is, now they don't say the words of spells. Brilliant. It's so much more mature now. Yeah. The the soap opera thing's a really good good point, because even a lot of the cinematography is like, feels more soap opera-y to me. Like, not every shot, but quite a few of them. And like the, even the... The color is, is still very, like, flat and kind of boring. But also, like, the three biggest scenes of exposition in the movie mm-hmm. are just people in a room talking about things. Yeah. Like, at the beginning, they have the big exposition meeting with the clearly evil man uh, who walks in <laughs> near the end, um, who I don't even know if we see again, honestly. You um, mean, do you mean Yusuf? Maybe. I don't know is, who that guy was. The, the guy who was going to kill Credence but then decided not to in the end. Sure. I, I only remember him from the opening scene of this movie where they're they're dumping exposition to make sure everybody is caught up to what is going on and what has already gone on. And then like the weird stuff that happened between the movies in the like three months or whatever it's been. Are you talking about Yusuf Karma? Are you talking about Spielman or are you talking about Grimson? I literally could not describe those three characters. <laughs> and therein lies the problem. That's, the, that's right. another problem. In the, in the Potter films, it's a school. If you're a kid... You're a student. If you're an adult, you're a teacher. Everyone has a reason to be there. All of these people just get coming in and going, I have a reason to be in this plot. You're like, okay, explain it. And then they do. And then they fuck off again. But sometimes they don't explain it. They're just there telling Dumbledore something. 
Yeah. Oh gosh, there was a fourth exposition scene with Dumbledore mm-hmm. where they go to the they go to Hogwarts and it's just people talking to each other about a thing. And the the scene in the crypt at the end was just so seven minutes of two different ah, but this is a very long story. Well, this is another very long story somehow connected. And it's so amazing because when you said that they were on the Titanic, I was mm-hmm. like, oh. Oh, of course they were. Yeah. Of course they had to tie it back to this thing. I didn't even catch that. I'm just like, all right, it's a big ship. It went down. Like, being the Titanic doesn't add anything to this, but hey, that's a thing I remember. Side note, that's more of a fan theory. It's not impossible that it's the Titanic, which means it is the Titanic. However, it's the fucking Titanic. Let's face it, folks. It's sinking in exactly the same way. The steerage section is exactly the same decoration. It's the year... It's the Titanic. It just we didn't yikes. see that it say Titanic at the end. Which then I guess kind of goes back into like how strange like this this kind of feels like it's supposed to be a period piece, right? It's 1927 mm-hmm. in the movie, but like it kind of doesn't feel like it in like a weird way until they throw something like that in. You're like, is that a is that a thing? It's well, always then- suffered because the wizarding world has always felt somewhat medieval. And, and yet the, the Hogwarts kids that Dumbledore's teaching seem more modern than the kids in the first Philosopher's Stone movie. This is true. Yeah. They're all wearing quite old-fashioned robes in the first one. And they're from 60 years beforehand! Yes, right. indeed. And also the thing you said, Lauren, about the uh, the, the way the aesthetic of uh, the American magical Sorry, world. Sorry, 70 if you count it by film years. Oh, yeah. Which is True. the 2000s. Continue, yeah, sorry. some extras. Um, yeah, the, uh, the American wizarding world being much more industrial and technological and the addition of all of the clockwork that makes it seem more like a form of technology than actual magic. But that means that American magic users seem very cut off from quite a significant thing that was going on in America at that point in time. Which was? The Depression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In in the original Fantastic Beast 1, it felt more Depression-era mm. than this does, most Possibly definitely. Because it's in, set in New York, and it muted. reminds you of uh, King Kong. Mm. And there's yeah. a lot of people who are British and we feel mm. like we're in the Depression all the time anyway. <laughs> you, know, you know, mentioning the year again, just jogged a memory as i was doing some of the research i was looking at the um the secession of who was using the uh the elder wand Mm -hmm. and grindelwald stole got the elder wand from in in 1926 literally a year before this film happens that feels weird because in the opening scene when he's taking the carriage he just hands it to a dude to make him fall off the carriage and then just has it back again for reasons oh fuck you're right like, He's like, hold if, this. I'm going to just throw this block off the carriage. Oh, you may have that, disarmed me. Now you're the, you're the powerful one. Ugh. That whole scene bothered me so much. Not to jump back to a Grindelwald thing, but I just I have to mention it. Because, like, well, wait a minute. So you're, you're, you look like this other character. You could just leave. Like, why are you even attacking this carriage? Also, what's this little weird little lizard creature thing that happens to be in your cell and also muzzled? Like, that wasn't in the first film. He throws it out the uh, um, the carriage, and, and like, it seems a weird beat of, like, people are like, oh, a weird little dragon thing, and then he kills it, and you're like, why? Well, I hate this guy now, forever. Mm, it's a really yeah. great way to make everyone hate him and actually eliminate that maybe he's a decent he's dude. A it's like, no, 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 no he, he definitely doesn't have a point. He just killed a small a animal. Out of a Fuck carriage. this guy. And that... Your bearded dragon. The rescue scene is way too long and way too roller coastery. you hmm. pointed out. 
also the whole thing like it, people might not realize what it's about it's just to get the blood peg it's just yeah. to get that MacGuffin. Like, yeah, he swaps places with some dude, but it's only so that he can attack from the outside so that he can get the blood peg. It makes no, no sense because, like, that dude dies in the end because he's not, he doesn't have the conviction to Abernathy. walk through the flame. No, no, that's the, uh, uh, the Asian guy. Is it, who knows? But, yeah. um. The Asian I, guy I who they, he was like, would you betray me? And the Asian guy doesn't say anything. And, and that's basically, well, yes, that, that's a, that's a yes. Then I'm going to take that as a yes. <laughs> would you betray me? Maybe. Um, but, so like, okay. Grindelwald's just little... so good at reading body language. He does it with Lita Lestrange later. He works out from long pause, standing behind him and reaching for her wand that she's probably about to shoot him in the back. I don't know how he does it. No, oh, it's 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 really incredible. Yeah. She he, also he, turns to uh, Newton and says fatalistically, "I love you." Yeah. Just beforehand, oh. and there's another long pause, and then she goes to uh, uh, to kill him. I, I, again, he's such a master of re- of reading body language. He could tell just from her thirty second pause and letting go of his hand and standing still in a baleful fashion that she was probably about to betray him and shoot him in the back. He's a genius. Grindelwald is a genius. And I won't hear a word said against him. It's just so annoying to me that the opening scene of this film is Grindelwald attacking this carriage for seemingly no... Like, it's not for most of the movie you even know what that little bobble is. Yeah. And because it's not something that was set up in any of the previous films. Like, we don't know what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. But... The we do know what the elder wand is, and it's the same. Like it, you you can tell it on sight, and yeah. this is a thing that in the the lore he went out of his way to like track it down and take it because it is the most powerful wand. Yada yada yada. Which he loses rent like in the first scene. Like we see that that guy fall into the water, still holding it. We have I I don't know how he gets it back. I assume he just magics it back. A right. wizard. The did guy it. who falls in the water just to 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 it's Spielman. He's the old guy who asked Newt to go and find credence. Is he the one who walked out of the shadows at the end after Newt said that he wasn't going to take the position with the ministry? Yes. Okay. <laughs> he's a so ministry he's the, guy, definitely. He's the one I, I marked as clearly evil man. Okay, oh, no, that, that's cool. Grimson. That's the guy that Spielman dispatches in Newt's place. Question I, mark. He's the, the one who turns up and kills the little uh, nursemaid, Irma Dugard. Oh, gosh. I mean, okay. I find it interesting that the only characters whose names I recall and can connect them to are characters who were in the previous film mm-hmm. or Nagini, mm-hmm. pretty much. And this, this, this is the problem. All of these new characters... No one gives a flying fuck about them. Tell me the, one thing about Theseus. One thing. I, I'll wait. Is is that Newt's brother? Yes. I, okay. Okay. Tell me one thing, Lauren. <laughs> well, I mean, that's it. He's Newt's brother, and that's the one is thing. You, you've got marrying Lestrange. Isn't he already married to her? They're engaged. Well, oh, they're no. engaged. Yeah, it was in yeah, the magazine. Engaged. I saw it in the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, everything in the magazine is, and that the, even that whole blocking of that scene where she says "I love you" and they're standing next to each other. So it's, it's like I wonder ambiguous. who she meant. No, it's yeah. she means Newt, and that's clear. But, yeah, but they they don't play with that. Like that's not a character beat. Like there's no real unrequited love. There's no back and forth. There's no nothing. It's, it's just, just there's such an easy way to to expand on that though, which is that you have the initial focus on Theseus and Newt is slightly blurred in the background, and then you have the camera focusing focus on, on Newt. Newt. Or or better, she turns around and says, "I love you," and Newt says, "Thanks." 
And she goes, <laughs> ugh, and then shoots at Grindelwald in the back. I'm not like good with just, people. It just makes no I'm sense. I'm like, not why would good she... with people. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm, I, I'm not making fun of Newt. Newt's my favourite fucking thing about this. Oh, yeah. Well, my, my favorite thing about it are the few actual magical beasts that we get to see because right. they, they do make illusions. Because, hold it, you know, hold it back. Hold it back. We're doing a bad sandwich. Oh, good. Oh, good. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Well, I was just talking about the soap opera style. Can I move to the next bit? Yes, please. Okay. Oh, gosh. Numero five. Fixation on ultimately unimportant reveals over character growth. Can you tell, like, not one character grows in this film. It genuinely seems like Rowling watched The Last Jedi and missed its reassurance that bloodlines are secondary to strength of character, which correlated with her own work so many times. So she watched that scene where he goes, they're nothing, nobody. They're just buried on a planet. They were were nobody. And she went, well, we'll see about that, Sonny Jim. I can tell you about bloodlines. This leads to a convoluted mass collision of multiple tragic backstories that slowly exhausts the audience rather than drawing them in until we no longer care about the reveals because we do not care about the people involved. One key aspect destructive to maintained engagement over this second Wizarding series, both Fantastic Beasts, is that because we are dwelling on already established history, we already know that Grindelwald loses. We know Dumbledore beats him. We can intuit that in order to do so, he will probably have to kill his biological brother, question mark. What this film suggested, The Crimes of Grindelwald, new Dumbledore, new sexy Dumbledore, and new Grindelwald, Johnny Depp, what it suggested was that they would clash, or at the very least, meet. They don't. What it promises by the end is that now they have the ability to potentially clash. So we actually haven't moved one sodding inch on a journey we already knew the conclusion of. However, we do all now care a great deal less. That's why it's a disaster, folks. That's why it's a disaster. I mean, the the movie literally has negative character growth. It ruins character growth from the first film. Yeah. <sighs> and as I said before, the um, the Potter books. Now, obviously, she she retrofitted some stuff. She like must have been going back through philosophers and going, "Oh, that's something I could actually use in Deathly Hallows." And go back and go, "Ah ha You didn't expect that this actually meant something." And I was like, "It didn't before, but now it does." I did the same thing in Steamheart. It's fine. I love that stuff. And there were some things that she wrote circa philosophers that she waited and waited, and waited, and followed up on eventually. And it was sublime for so many people, because it was this magnificently crafted series of mysteries that used magic to draw us in, because the magic was fun. But really, the mystery was the the structure, and that was what engaged people. And it's been so effective, too effective, that now people watch the first Star Wars sequel and go right there's clearly a jk rowling style big mystery here and the reality was no there wasn't it was like we'll write this shit in a bit and somehow the sequel to that film did some really great things with the premise that was set up in that and you know obviously you you could have hated those things but here's the thing a lot of people really love the last jedi not a lot of people really love The Crimes of Grindelwald. I haven't heard thing one said about it that was not promotion of the film that it's good. Everyone hates it. If, if you YouTube The Crimes of Grindelwald, 
It's just why it sucks, why it failed. And that's like, I watched a couple of them. I was like, oh, this isn't incisive enough. And we had to really go into more depth on it. But um, there's nothing about why I actually love it. Even Batman v Superman got why this is actually a magnificent tour de force. And Last Jedi got some tear-jerking, wonderful videos about how it really is full of resonant themes. It succeeded for so many people in just the right way that Ryan Johnson intended. Whereas this, I'm, I'm not seeing it. I could be wrong. And, and if you find one, folks, please direct me to it. I want to see people go, this was so good. I, I don't want to feel this bad about the magical world. Like, if this had been like the meeting between Dumbledore and Grindelwald and they hadn't beaten each other... But, like, they'd actually talked mm-hmm. and there'd been this crackling dialogue between the two of them and that Grindelwald had actually started to say things that made Dumbledore go, Ugh. And, and And for it to be, like, really obvious from how they were talking, this is how you drew him in. And then when Dumbledore ven- eventually reacts, he's like, no, but you've become twisted. Mm-hmm. And you're like, ah, but say he drew him in like this, but then he became a darker version of what, Dump, Albus fell in love with. Mm. That was what I was hoping for with this film. And they didn't even vaguely deliver that. And they didn't even vaguely deliver anything that even approximated that. Yeah. It was just, ah, do you, do you want to know about uh, Credence's uh, lineage? No, I never did. No one does. And you could even then have a show not tell about the blood peg because have this conversation where uh, Dumbledore is kind of pull and push towards and repulsed by and then by the end of the conversation realize how realizes how far Grindelwald has gone goes to attack him can't and the then peg. you get the flashback to how the blood peg was created and what it and no. a, a, an evidence of what it does rather than simply somebody going this is a blood peg and this yeah. is what it does and then Grindelwald's like oh my friend and just that there's a genuine sadness there and, and like a sense of betrayal. Everything about X-Men First Class that they don't do here. It's fucking unbelievable. <sighs> yeah. I mean, the, the only uh, show don't tell part of that was uh, when Dumbledore goes down to the mirror, that mirror yeah. from Erisad. the first. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did like what, that. What is, what is that supposed to it's show supposed you? It's supposed to show remember. you your darkest desire. Your heart's desire. Your darkest Heaven's desire. Christ. So... So Dumbledore goes down there and watches a scene of young him and young Grindelwald making the blood pack. Like that's, that feels like a weird, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's just a, it's there for a, Oh, Hey, you remember this, don't you? Um, but you know, it shows them making it. So you're like, okay, well that's where that bobble came from. I still don't know what the heck it does, but you're absolutely right that they should have had a scene that would have expressed all of those things. Like then we might've had a movie. I mean, at least more of one. Men have wasted away in front of it. I mean, like that—that that scene would have had more import. Yeah. I mean, it does. It does now, actually, because we've seen Dumbledore do this. <sighs> anyway, um, number four: the character of Lita Lestrange was genuinely compelling to me. Tragic and sad in a way that felt like classic Potter. She had weaknesses and strengths, and a strong connection to the hero. And she was evaporated the moment that her story was told. And rather than that leading on to a complicated emotional victory like the end of Order of the Phoenix, we lose Queenie to this smirking villain, and we lose hope along with her. My favorite, Deathly Hallows One, ends in a similar low point. 
Like, you can't debate the fact that Deathly Hallows 1 ends with a real point of tragedy, a powerful melancholy, but it has a simple sacrifice and a little, just a real personal touch with what happens on the beach there. Harry Potter. Dobby. And it's infinitely better handled than what we have here, which is the reveal at the end of you didn't know this, but he's Dumbledore's brother. And I was there in the cinema. And they said, your, your real brother is Dumbledore. And the entire audience, I actually heard this sound as everyone collectively shrugged at the same time. It was amazing. Everyone went... And like all the shoulder joints just went... At the same time, it was astonishing. Some, someone said, what does that mean? And someone else said, it means he's his brother. Or son. Or maybe a fun uncle. Doesn't matter. And everyone went, oh. And then they all filed out, depressed. Hmm. And then Grindelwald's final line... I hate Paris. I Completely hate Paris. punctures Paris hates any you too, sir. Emotional <laughs> tension that you've gained by that point. Because that's the that, that underlines that that this guy's a scumbag and he doesn't really mean much of anything that he says. The Okay, number three. Weak, misguided and wrong-headed decisions of representation. The Asian Nagini I've just mentioned. The gay Dumbledore and Grindelwald. Remember, she said way after the book series finished. Oh, by the way, Dumbledore was gay. Didn't ever want to say that during the book series, but he's totally gay. And it's like, oh, okay. Could probably mention that during the book series. And I think they kind of, uh, kind of mentioned it regarding him being friends with uh, Grindelwald, but they never really went into it there. And this was this was their opportunity, their, their opportunity to show a general close, a genuine closeness between these two that's still there or remember it. And, and the closest you get is that mirror scene. Mm. It's, it's the- like she wants the credit for saying we have gay characters, but she doesn't actually want to take the penalty of having gay characters and that enraging the American right. Who are. Obviously, classically huge Harry Potter fans. What? They hate you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) J.K. Rowling is kind of like done a lot of... All Americans say Rowling. It's rolling to run with bowling. I don't care if she's a transphobe. (laughs) Fucking eat me. But... um, So Jesus. Okay, so what... what, um, uh, You're going to have to uh, cite precedent on the transphobia as well with this. Well, I mean... You, it, there's a lot of uh, there's been a lot of investigations into a lot of like the people that she follows on Twitter and some of the things that she oh, says shit, yeah. outside of it that that like yeah she kind of tries to like assuage it but like then oops said this again that's like really transphobic so like I I've been kind of like side eyeing her in general ever since the old films um, you know that's allegedly I guess I don't have first-hand knowledge she didn't call me anything but the way that she treats any kind of representation is very much an afterthought to like you said get that credit but not but even like i said in the first film it very much reads like a gay narrative 
And in the end, the solution is, once everybody knows, he has to die. That ain't a great theme. <laughs> so like, there's a lot of... It's a trope called kill your gays, but it's actually usually applied to uh, uh, gay people in a happy relationship. You'd be like, well, this can't be allowed to last. Kill one of them. <laughs> and then in this film, it's all such hand-wavy wallpaper. Because, I mean, like, if I can't remember the characters' names and associate any aspect of characterization to them, like, what does it matter what their skin color is or anything like that. Mm. Like the, the, the guy who was chasing credence to kill him because of things that like his ancestor did. I still can't, we, you've mentioned his name. I don't know how many times because I don't remember what his name is. Even still. Yusuf um, Kama. Is that him? Yep. Who had the, the, the worms in his eyes? Yes. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean like, okay, he's, there i i really until the big exposition he's there he's black get used to it i mean but that's it like there's no there's no uh but that it's no no no. that actually called like in a really uncomfortable aspect of the story that that was one of the things that made my hackles go up because they set up this scenario where karma's mother a happily married American woman of color. Oh, she. Uh, no, uh, she's uh, S- Senegal from Senegal. He's, yeah. he's, he Senegalese. says he's of Senegal descent. Yeah. descent. Um, but his mother is imperious, charmed mm-hmm. into going with an even wealthier white man. Lestrange, to be so his father, his sex slave, basically. Yeah, and that is hysterically uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For that to be like an afterthought for a story that actually ends up going nowhere. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't care that it went nowhere and then you aren't supposed to kill this guy because he's actually someone else un- entirely unrelated. His mother, who was black, was abducted, raped and died. Yeah, and it, what made it worse was it felt to me, and this this is is entirely supposition on my part, but I hope that you will see that there is form that would make me think this, that they only put that part of the story in to explain the fact that, that Zoe, Zoe Kravitz, Kravitz is, black, is black. To explain the tokenism in the first film, because they showed her in a picture and they're like, oh, Zoe, uh, the Little Estrange, she's a very important character. She'll definitely be in later films. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the only reason it's there, is to explain that like this color of their skin in a way because like you know oh Lestrange I've I've heard that name before from the original films oh yeah there's that character but the only example we've seen so far is Helena Bonham Carter who is like so white you can't get any whiter apart from Tim Burton (laughs) I mean that's why Tim Burton likes to cast her he doesn't need any of the white makeup yeah but it's he also likes Johnny Depp an awful lot Hmm. But it's just the idea of like, you know, okay, well, Lestrange, we know that they're like evil wizards. And then to have it be the whole like pure blood thing is really uncomfortable whenever you start like applying race stuff. Like, because I know they're talking about pure blood wizards, but like that phraseology has been used in other contexts in real life that is way there are times when this this book series that uses the phrase Merlin's pants as a, as a, a expletive uh, is maybe a little unqualified to make these. I mean, this is this is using the unqualified um, fallacy, but 
sometimes like this is this is for kids and you're overly simplifying this historical real world shit like the the Salem witch trial she uh, uh, said that the, the actual witches who were um burned alive cast freezing charms on the flames so that they only made a tickling sensation so it was actually a great big laugh for, for them and it's like oh okay joe so what about all those um thousands of uh, young women who were actually murdered burned to death and hanged uh <sighs> yeah they would have been killed sorry about yeah. that well, they, they were just they were just no mages that that were caught up in the whole Can't thing because cant spells. Oh my gosh! Even all of those things feel the no magic. Like. It's yeah. ugh, very uncomfortable all yeah. the way around. But like, if you're going to use that kind of verbiage and then be like, oh, like we're going to make these characters talk about you know being pure blood, but they themselves are from mixed race parentage. It's like. What are we doing? Like, this is a very strange, tone-deaf kind of use of this language. Uh, Also, what you said about the the homosexual representation. Joe, in interview, again on the extras, said, I'm not particularly interested in the whole sexual side of it. Even though she did tweet they had an intense sexual relationship. Let's forget that. That was for Twitter. This was for the interview and the, the, the company byline. I'm not interested in the sexual side of it. I'm very interested in the emotional side of it. Okay. You were in charge of every word in that script. You were in charge of every event in that you were film. Say you were in charge of every word in that sentence and you still got it wrong. <laughs> that too. But if, if she's really interested in the emotional side of it, could, could that not have been in the film? The emotional side of their relationship. Apart from just in a mirror, unspoken, never really made clear. Apart from Dumbledore saying we were more than friends if Close, you get what i'm saying closer than brothers if line. you know what i mean wink wink <laughs> there's a uh, supposition that uh, being exposed to uh, any media which contains language sympathetic to lgbt people will turn your kids gay so that's not going away anytime soon mm. so let's just fucking do it anyway and hope that they <laughs> all just stop watching and reading well, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Book that burnings. we have we have more gay people? Like that sounds great. Like, yeah. come on. <laughs> but okay, um, there's more representation in here that I haven't yet touched on. Queenie Goldstein, Tina Goldstein, Jacob Kowalski. These were the first Jewish characters uh, in uh, Joe's work. She was criticised in the past uh, for uh, her depiction of the goblins in Gringotts Bank because you can take the imagery of the goblins and you can put it next to hateful imagery of Jewish people and you can just go oh it's that then you could make honestly make the depiction of the goblins in Gringotts Bank seem like a early 19th century mass hysteria watch out the Jews will take all our money campaign and it's really fucking disturbing if you look at it like that and she declined to make the goblins decent people in fact when she went back and actually got into like some goblins doing stuff in the deathly hallows and actually got into goblin affairs they were treacherous and money grubbing and uh vindictive and also cruel to dragons so, yeah. Not better. Not better. So, it's okay. You've got another chance. Now you've got these three genuinely lovable Jewish characters. And one of them ends up joining Hitler's squad at the end. Uh, okay. It's a story development. 
do, do you see what you might have done there <laughs> with with that? And even the idea that, like, at the end, I th- I think it's supposed to be like, oh, she did it so that they can make a new world so she can be with Jacob. But, like, there's a, that final scene where she's acting crazy and he thinks you're acting crazy and she hears his his thoughts and so she acts so, – so then she does it. It's like, oh, is that really why you're doing this? Like, why oh. – uh her reasoning is uh, that the American um, magical board won't let the two of them marry. And so she watches him say, I don't think that, hu- that muggles are inferior. I simply think that they are other, fit for a different purpose. And she's like, well, now that seems like a guy who'd be very happy with me marrying this other guy right next to me. I was going to say, at no point do you get an expression on Jacob's face of, dude, I'm right here. <laughs> yeah. Tina, don't say anything. Uh, maybe no one's figured out I'm a muggle yet. <laughs> it's like the uh, the humans in the in the vampire uh, party in what we do in the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell! This, it's surrounded by bigots. This aspect comes along with naive, muddled political observations, including but not limited to Trump era rallies of fanatical racists, political divides tearing apart families, travel bans, slavery, the Titanic and World War II. I don't condemn Rowling for these decisions, although clearly several of her other actions are very questionable, but I do wish that she had better counsel and that more people could say no to her. So I'm moving straight on to the Queenie thing. This is my number number two. Horrendous, inconsistent character behaviour for Queenie Goldstein, uh, with who was one of my absolute favourite characters in the whole Wizarding world after seeing her in uh, Fantastic Beasts 1, with major plot turns dependent on thin and shaky foundations rather than a series of relatable erosions to her sensibility. So she starts off gaslighting Jacob. That comes alarmingly out of nowhere with no build-up. Queenie having, as I said this before, no coping mechanisms or spells when she's in a crowd. That's baffling misreading for very sensitive people. She's taken in entirely by Grindelwald and his manifestly evil mass-murdering Nazi group. They're staying in a dead muggle's house, for fuck's sake. Uh, it's it's in a way that rings entirely hollow for someone like Queenie with everything she is. Uh, As I said before, Jacob Kowalski and the Goldstein sisters all being New York Jewish was a huge deal. It was a step forward for inclusivity. And it didn't feel tokenistic because there was three of the main cast of four. Uh, And to then have the gentlest, sweetest character in Wizarding History effectively join the man who has been the direct analogue for Hitler in the Wizarding world for decades within Rowling's work after seeing what a fine argument he makes is one of the most off screen off screen it's one of the most appallingly misjudged moments in all of cinema because that's the thing so much of this film is dedicated to all of the shit we've said above and at no point like she, she talks to him briefly really briefly there needed for this to be the end of this film there needed to be a a build up to like we needed to see queenie trying to deal with jacob and then getting turned down then we needed to see her face go from hopeful to crestfallen in real time. We needed to see that scene happen so that we're like, oh, she had all this hope. And then we need to see her being in two minds about gaslighting Jacob. And then she does it anyway because she's like, it's for I'm doing this for the right reasons. We need to see that. 
like this is such a huge turn you need to so like you need to put these pieces down then when he freaks out she needs to run away not sure of herself anyway and then when she talks to grindelwald he needs to open up with a whole slew of stuff that he actually believes and because she's a mind reader and she reads his mind and reads nothing but this guy really believes this stuff and he's talking a lot of sense you know in the dark knight rises when bane was really a great character until you find out oh no he just wants to destroy all of gotham same as the rest of the league of shadows that's really boring it's the same with this guy like if he actually believed this stuff that makes him interesting. The fact that he's contemptuous of everyone makes him boring. And the fact that Queenie couldn't tell that he was contemptuous of everyone makes the fact that she's a mind reader the most confusing aspect of this character turn. Mm. Yeah. There's actually, there's a really intriguing way that they could have taken her her situation. And it, it kind of requires them to change something that was laid down that the American... <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. Well, indeed. Uh, the American magical world will not let uh, muggles and wizards marry. And Newt says something about them being really backward and that that's, that's not a problem in England. In, mm. in Britain, they don't have an issue with it. But you don't... And, and correct me if I'm wrong and I've missed one somewhere, but I don't remember seeing any muggle and wizard couples where they live within the magical world. Wizards leave the magical world and marry muggles and yeah. live in the muggle world. Yeah, and this is in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, but there aren't any muggles coming in. So just have that. Just have, well, Queenie, you can marry him if you want to, but you've got to go. You've got to go and live in the muggle world. And she can't because this Legilimens uh, ability that mm -hmm. she has, she will not be able to turn off or cope in an environment where she hasn't got magical something. You could, like, that. there's many readings there about being uh, a person on the spectrum being told they have to leave their place of safety. Well, and not to mention the fact that there's a really good moment, because Jacob would love to live more in the magical world yeah, because he it. finds so much of his workaday life at, like, the canning factory before he gets to the bakery to be, like, so mundane as to be soul-crushing and yeah. just loves his brush with magic and whimsy and fantasy and imagination. And so, like, the idea of... Well, you, this is how we do it. You have to go and be part of the the nomad world. But having Jacob be like, but no, please, like, I, I want to help out. I'm actually pretty good at helping take care of these magical beasts. Maybe I can help Newt. Like, I can see these scenes playing out. Mm -hmm. You've got his, the character. Yeah, yeah. And him being... The, and, and you don't that, even like these films. That being his, <laughs> his heartbreak, that, he, that what he loves about Queenie is the creativity of the magical world that she represents and that if they have to leave they won't have access to that and she will lose that and that's what he doesn't want to take her away from yeah 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 because he would feel so guilty about the idea of like well no i really want to be with you and even if we can't be in the magical world like we can bring some magic but i can't in good conscience like bring you out of that kind of space and like there, there's a lot of texture you can do there which is what makes the scene in the in the beginning whenever he's all magic to be in love with her so nonsensical because he is he's desperately in love with her anyway <laughs> Yeah. To, she oh. didn't need to push him. That's I, I was when I was trying to write it, I was like, right, so she enchants him to make him love he already does love her. Mm. What? 
Uh, the only thing she had enchant him with is to take away the memories of the um, uh, the magical ministry saying no about their wedding, which again we see that scene it suddenly becomes really powerful and it explains her movements at the end i mean even if even if they so they they lean towards this but they don't really do anything with it that part of the reason why she she put the love spell on him which again like i don't want to draw any parallels but like how different is that from the imperious curse that was being used yep. in or in indeed merope gaunt in uh using a love potion on tom riddle senior Yes, exactly. Like she, like, they could give birth to Tom Riddle Jr. any minute now. Well, I mean, and that's the thing. And later on in this movie and in the previous films, this kind of taking over somebody's ability specifically for a relationship, like somebody's free will, yeah. is like seen as an evil act. And we see Queenie doing it. So, yeah. But they don't kind of like lean into that like harsh aspect. But one of the things that is stated is that she is doing that to convince Jacob to have children with her mm-hmm. instead of just – fucking talking about it and again that's exactly that's why i drew the parallel with Marape. yeah well who but was that, but damaged herself after but years the, of abuse and i guess in a way like well yeah because but queenie didn't have these years of abuse and exactly. her first thought is just well i'll just make you want to do this instead of like well exactly because there's not so there's no lead-in mm. she's so gentle with everyone in that first film it doesn't make any sense and we don't get the reason we just get the consequence everything and, that she's about in that first movie is there's there's a setup where she has this weird little feedback loop with people where she picks up from their thoughts what they want her to be and then she bees it hmm. So, and the fact that they could have used the friction between Jacob and Queenie to be like a character piece or something like that, where Jacob is just, you know, afraid of commitment and they're like working together. But instead of having Queenie just be like, hand wave magic away. No, no. Like that's like, you're going to be in love with me. This is what you're going to do. Like there's something that could be done there, but they, they squander that. They don't use the opportunity that they could have to utilize that friction as a character piece. They don't even think about how any of those other aspects of like Jacob and Queenie that we were talking about. It's just, I mean, even the idea of, like, there's the clear – in the first movie, the whole nomad magic world separation is very much riffing on segregation. Mm -hmm. Like, you're in America. It's almost done as a critique of American culture, certainly from around that time. But, like, oh, hey, kind of also today. They didn't say at any point, well, what if we move to another country? Like, that's totally a thing that, like, mixed racial couples have – done Mm. it's like moved to a country where they could get married like why didn't like when they were in london talking to newt be like yeah like we're thinking about this because we would be allowed to do this here and then bring in the failure for commitment or like jacob being pulled in a couple of directions where like you know i want to need to be enchanted at all no not even a little bit not even slightly and then you you've then that would feed into an actually really logical reason why queenie would go with Grindelwald at the end because after having been in her heart rejected by Jacob for whatever uh, decent reasons he may have that she would then go well fine then screw muggles I'm going to go and find me somebody who's magical oh whoa what is I mean I could see that working really well, but like that is such a swing of like, well, yeah. but, but I mean, th- what we get is a ridiculous swing anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least the 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 general idea in the film as it currently is written is that she's still somewhat misguidedly wanting to do it so that they can change the culture so she can be with Jacob. Mm-hmm. And that's still fucked up and short-sighted and really dumb, especially for a mind reader, but to to change it to I was rejected by this man in my dreams even though I'm somewhat of a homebody and um you know he has all these problems with commitment i'm going to go with magic hitler and kill yeah. all of them also like, like if you've got her skulking around the castle at nuremberg fucking like even if he's got palpatine powers of no mind reading his bellatrix lestrange who has a name rosienne i believe mm. um it's like could, could you not think about that time when you killed the baby just just don't. Just don't think about it around her. Whenever she's around, don't think about it. People don't think in the language that they think. They think in images and flashes. It's all abstraction. It's like that. that it is ridiculous that Rosie M would be able to hide her malice around but, Queenie. But, uh, Queenie and Queenie is like, oh, you certainly are glamorous. <laughs> but Queenie... Queenie does have a lot of like reading thoughts in in words, yeah. And uh, even just having a scene where Grindelwald would tell R- Rosie, you said her name was Rosie, to like think in French or just something like that, because Queenie doesn't know French, like just something like that. Just but just no, no, I, I, I'm I'm disputing the whole th- that original explanation in the first film. Like, oh, but oh people okay. think a different language, and I find it harder to read. You might find it harder to get the specificity, but if you could read someone's mind, it's not going to be a typed dispatch on a daisy wheel. It's going to be flashes of images and music. Yeah, and and that's and dead and, children. And the, <laughs> there's a lot of Fuck, dead children. So like, in they're the film. so casual about that, and that is the inciting incident of Harry Potter. And I'm sure that that wasn't an accident, but it's so fucking casual that everyone in the audience is like, "Oh, fuck this guy!" So that you lose all that sense of, "Well, he's very persuasive." No, he's not. He's a fucking ghoul. Mm-hmm. He even looks like a ghoul. Yeah. Like, well, apparently, they, they uh, there were people who were uh, they were worried that he would be too persuasive and they get a lot of Thanos was right stuff so they made him look more ugly and weird and there was a lot of different like takes that Johnny Depp did throughout and there was a lot of different types of Grindelwald that he gave them so they honed in on a very specific inhuman cold dull version because obviously the more sprightly version or the more warm or interesting version was maybe a bit too persuasive good good thinking guys good thinking you avoided the whole Thanos is right thing but you did entirely undermine your entire plot well done. Well done. <laughs> if you set out to make a character who's ridiculously charismatic and persuasive and actually believes he's right, you might want to think about challenging your own world and material. Exactly as you said, making a critique on America. I'll talk about that in a second when we talk about where they could go from here, but just put a pin in it. Number yeah. one, the last and most important, because everything above could just about have been forgivable were it not for... A strange, newfound, cold cruelty which violates the always previously hopeful core of the Harry Potter slash Fantastic Beasts films. Oppressive, grey atmosphere with a lack of humour and love, or at least minimal humour and love, seemingly attempting to distance itself from childish things and winding up impenetrable 
The ministry and the stooges they send out to bring in Grindelwald seem both heavy-handed and yet inept. This is par for the course with Harry Potter. But they were always contrasted with the determined, plucky kids who nearly always managed to save at least something with their actions. They even juxtaposed that at the end of Fantastic Beasts 1. He's like, no, 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 let me speak to him. And the, these guys were standing there with their loaded guns going, Give it, uh, you got two seconds. He speaks to Credence and then they open fire and kill him. They juxtaposed the difference between the two approaches. But in this one, the kids lose. The kids didn't save anything apart from the fucking blood peg. Nobody accomplishes anything apart from Grindelwald, who loses his blood peg but gains credence, and a mind reader. So much of the story hangs upon brainwashing and rape and killing babies, and the ultimate end being that despite all the mountains of faults detailed above, they could still have pulled this off if the message had been clear. Everything's not awesome right now. But if we stick together and hold on to the hope that we can make things better eventually... Though the night is long and so painful, we will weather the dark and see the sunrise again. That's how all those later Harry Potter films finished, even Deathly Hallows. Just that bury, I want to bury him without magic. That little, little bit of humanity in there. People desperately need that. And nowhere near enough people saw the Lego movie too. And even fewer read that message in it. Instead, the take-home seems to be Evil One. But we have the MacGuffin now that means that there might be a fight later. I had the same kind of problem with uh, Infinity War. I, I genuinely don't believe that it is responsible to make a film with that ending in our time. It's like, oh, it resonates though, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel like now? Like, we lost. Fuck, maybe we'll never win. And it's like, yeah, maybe we never will. But, but how are we going to be powered through if we're all despairing? Your job is to keep us going. And that is particularly important with family films I had a conversation with somebody at work who had taken their kids to see it and then had to kind of explain the ending and the kids were like but the bad guy won yeah Voldemort wins in Goblet of Fire Voldemort wins in Order of the Phoenix Voldemort wins in Half-Blood Prince Voldemort wins in Deathly Hallows 1 I am not saying don't have a movie where the villain wins. Villains winning is what life is right now. The most precious resource to the people, especially those who love Harry Potter, is the cinematic equivalent of Sam's speech at the end of The Two Towers, which also just happens to be Neville Longbottom's speech at the end of Deathly Hallows. Uh, the other thing is that uh, there was clearly, like, that. this is a post-Trump film. Like, the original Fantastic Beasts came out practically the day that he got in. I remember seeing it at the cinema and I was just distraught. And it was just this little ray of sunshine and hope and I was just like, oh, this is lovely. And everyone else was like, meh, Fantastic Beast isn't as good as Harry Potter. And it's like, well, of course it's not as good as Harry Potter. You haven't had fucking 10 years and seven books worth of build-up here. You haven't, like, it's not meticulously crafted. It's a romp. It's a, this is an adventure in the magical world. I really loved it. And... Since then, Joe's clearly gone right. Now, let me tackle the political landscape right now, which is a really fucking bad idea, especially if the take-home's going to be this smirking prick one, and there's not a goddamn thing we can do about it, but maybe we have the key to his undoing. Like, that blood peg may as well be impeach the bastard. <laughs> Who cares? It's not going to fucking work. Well, it, it will, because we know Dumbledore's going to fucking get him out. But Dumbledore will fucking defeat him at the end of his term. 
It's like, he could do so much fucking damage between now and then. It's so unwise to make him Trumpy. Uh, And he's got this shock of of cockatiel blonde hair. And it's like, yeah, I get what you're doing. And obviously with Queenie going and joining him, it's like, yeah, you see, families torn in two. These guys voted leave. These guys voted remain. And it's like the same as as fucking Brexit. It's like, well, no, that's that's not the case. It's like, well, Joe's like, well, you know, these people believe that they're uh, they're actually right. And, you know, that there's both sides... And uh, that's really fucking dangerous when we've got actual fucking white supremacist Nazis. That's why Voldemort is a more appropriate villain for this age. Because we've seen where Voldemort goes. This is bullshit for right now. And we see where Voldemort's come from. We can separate the humanity of who he was from the evil of his actions and therefore who he's become. Yeah. Lauren, anything on the tone? Well, in addition to all of that, the <laughs> the idea of Queen, Queenie is like so representative of like hope, and then the fact that she's just completely squelched by this film. It 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 really reminds me of another great wizard who knows that hope is necessary for these kinds of horrific endeavors and it's fucking Gandalf. I actually went back and watched the first Hobbit film Mm. fairly recently. Way better than this. Well, yeah, right. With, with, uh, with Lynn as she recovered with my girlfriend as she recovered. So we were watching it and like, I, I was kept getting just amused and like, like I was happy by the continued callbacks of like, well, of course we need Bilbo along he's like hope he's the the strength of home he is warmth and family and a hearth in this dark cold world and the the like how unbelievably important and how much strength there is in that and then in this film like the representation of that the warm hopeful kind-hearted person is just like hey evil hitler i'm with magic hitler i'm with you um but and then even more than that like thinking about this as like a more modern political thing and jumping off of like the Brexit and all that kind of stuff. The underlying thing is Grindelwald is still a gay character and that's kind of even worse. We have such a problem with representation, but not even the right wing people who like know anything about the magical world would necessarily like appreciate go with Grindelwald. Oh, he's Milo. Yeah, it's so uncomfortable. Who also has that shock of cockatiel hair. Prick. Mm -hmm. And and, and, uh, Grindelwald was described as blonde. Like, we saw him as blonde in the old films, too. Mm -hmm. But it's still just the idea that, in the end, like, yeah, he's evil and he's this horrible, like, misshapen person, which, you know, is a big fantasy film kind of thing where, he, like, he looks mean, he looks, like, ugly, so of course he has to be evil. Um, but then at the end, he's still, like, a gay character, too. So why? Like, there, there's so much stuff there that could be brought in and just isn't like all of this stuff is metaphor for like LGBT for racial profiling for segregation for all of these different elements it's important to note by the way they may say oh we were more than brothers there is not a whisper not a hair of what the wizarding community at large America England France feel about homosexuality 
and that's what I was going to say is they're yeah. using all of this like sorry I took that from you. Do you like do you want to rewind and, and no you, no you no it's that. fine it's fine it's fine because I was just uh, what I was going with is that you know these films are metaphors they use the the split between nomage and magical people for segregation they they do it as an exploration of like lgbt but anytime there is an element of that in the script in the film for representation for the people of color that are that are acting in this or for nagini being of you know east asian descent or of grindelwald and dumbledore being themselves like lgbt characters or the whole story with credence they don't do anything with it with that in the actual text of the story and all of the metaphors fall flat related to that so it's like they are in one point both totally ignoring that they could have some comment about these these very specific things and instead using only the language of their metaphors and botching it so catastrophically that it's just like what are we even doing Okay, let me just do things I like, and then we can talk about how where they might be able to proceed from this. I want to get out of here. Fair. I'm actually genuinely uncomfortable being in this spot. This this place that I loved so much, that was so it, it informed so heavily upon my worldview and my writing. And if you go back to listen to those shows, we're just pure adulation and loving the detail and all of this stuff. And now it's so poisoned. <laughs> I mean, even I can add into that, too. So this summer, I have a conference in Orlando. Every conference I have ever gone to Orlando, I have taken a day to go to Universal Studios, specifically to go to the the Harry Potter world. And, you know, we were there all together. Yeah, we were there all together. That was like my fourth or fifth time I had been there in the last like in those like two years or whatever. I went on the Hogwarts ride and then ran out of it going ballistic, just desperate to rest somewhere and wanted, wanted to puke. I just I didn't run out of the cinema from this feeling the same thing. I just trudged out just <laughs> bloodless going, "Oh god." But this is the thing that after watching these films and thinking about this, I was putting in my travel plans for this summer and I'm like, "Oh, it's in Orlando." And I was thinking to myself, "Should I take a day and go to Universal Studios again like I have every other time before this for the past like 4 years?" And I had a moment where I stopped and I'm like, "Yeah, no." No, I think I'm all right. And then made my travel plans, excluding that little extra vacation I could have gone on just because I have not soured, but it's like fallen so much more flat. Like the there's some bit of joy that has been ebbed from it that I couldn't bring myself to make the extra time. That's why I don't mince words when I say that this film is capital D disastrous. The Hobbit films did not make me feel like this about Lord of the Rings. The Star Wars prequels did not make me feel like this about episodes four, five, and six. The prequels, that is. Mm. uh, Solo did not make me feel like this about episodes seven or eight. I was able to separate them. This is a lot harder to separate because it's so informative of the minds behind it. And that is a really uncomfortable place to be. And I want to give everyone as much of the benefit of the doubt as I possibly can. I want to give everyone as much of the possibility for redemption as i can and it is possible they can pull this out of the fire but i also feel like the first film made less money than hallows a lot less this made a lot less money than the first fantastic beasts i feel like the third one's gonna get a lot less money again especially if they don't make it boom it boom all boom ends film if they do make it the third out of five 
it's going to make a lot less it's money. It's going to get trounced, and then they have no motive. Where do you to go from there? Fourth, yeah. Okay, so we'll talk about where they could go in just a second. Let me just do the ten things I like in reverse order. The inclusion of Jamie Campbell Bower as young Grindelwald. He was Anthony in Sweeney Todd, but he was also briefly in Deathly Hallows as young Grindelwald stealing the Elder Wand from Grigorovich the Wandmaker. And uh, who, by the way, was played by that old guy who was like General Ogle in uh, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. So they literally got an old Nazi to play old Johnny Depp, who is now (laughs) only the fourth person to play Grindelwald. Because remember, Colin Farrell was actually really good in that first one. I'd prepared this for the... When we originally were going to do Fantastic Beasts, but when... Farrell morphed into Johnny Depp, the whole audience went, ugh. Like, some people, I'm sure, were like, oh. But to a lot of people, especially considering what was happening at that point, and he looked so, well, like this, that everyone was like, oh, no, can you bring Colin Farrell back? Also, (laughs) we still don't associate Johnny Depp with Grindelwald at that point, so they've still got to say who he is. All the magical people are going, oh. And the audience are like, what, what, who And they're is like, he? who's that? Grindelwald. And people who don't know who, who Grindelwald really is go, oh, so he's that guy that they've been talking about a lot before. Mm. Fuck's sake. And I do want to point out again that they went from young Grindelwald to the Grindelwald we see in this in one year. Nineteen twenty six is when we saw that, that was a bad person. year. <laughs> it was a bad year for Grindelwald. <laughs> Fuck, man. Whatever led to him kind. getting that wand did not treat him well. <laughs> Took its terrible toll on me. Yeah, so I used to look you. like Anthony. Now I look like Sweeney Todd gone wrong. <laughs> and Sweeney Todd had already gone wrong. <laughs> okay, number nine. The Beasts, which uh, you mentioned uh, yourself. I-, I particularly like the Niffler. Uh, I liked him a lot in the first film, the little platypus guy, and the big cat thing, the Shuwu, or the Zuwu, the the um, uh, Chinese dragon thing. Yeah, I love the I, I love the little magic beasts. I think the magic beasts have more imagination in this one than in the previous one, kind of on the whole. Mm-hmm. But that might be because there were more in the first one that I thought weren't imaginative. Um, like the Kelpie at the beginning of this one, like that was a really nice scene. It was yeah. like a really mm. cute, like underwater dragon thing. I really liked that. Well, you get and, to, for no reason at all, get to meet uh, Newt's assistant. I suppose that oh. does answer the question of, uh, um, like, who the hell tends to all these animals when Newt isn't? Bunty. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that, I forgot she even existed. But, mm. um, but between the big, uh, Chinese cat dragon thing and the, the cute little evil big eyed cats, there's so much cat energy in this movie. Mm-hmm. I was like pretty here for it. Yeah. Um, number eight, the art design, especially when Newt and Jacob go to Paris and everything is warm and golden, which after all the mist and gray is actually really welcome. It's like, oh, actually, no, this is nice. And the the black silk curtains, remember that bit when it's like he's sending a, a giant tweet to Paris and um, <laughs> <laughs> to all the wizards there. And the, uh, the there's also a deleted scene with a strange dance performance. Remember when uh, the emperor and Anakin are watching like a, an opera mostly composed of bubbles in uh, Revenge of the Sith? 
There's also a bit where um, the elephants are on parade in the new Tim, Tim Burton Dumbo film that clearly seems to be inspired by that. But there's a bit where Lita Lestrange goes and looks at that. And it's this really haunting imagery, which she then starts to see the spectral form of her uh, brother in. And that just was very visually evocative. So Yates has not lost that. Yeah. I, I think the French Ministry of Magic is the best That was my next one. The set to. design, especially the Parisian Ministry of Magic. It's great. Continue, Lauren. Oh, no, I was just like, just everything about it was just so much more interesting than the previous Ministry of Magics we had seen in this film and in the previous film and like this series. I like the uh, Ministry of Magic in old films. Do you want to uh, Oh, well, I'm going, oh, trust me, I'm about to qualify that. Oh, people, because... are, but sorry, hang on, I just got to pause. People ask me, why do you not like the word interesting? It's not the word interesting, it's the context. It's like, so what did you think of the film? It was interesting. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. You're going to need to explain more than that. It's a hedge word. It's just a way of delaying saying something more important. You may as well just say, um, at that point. <laughs> so let's just cut to the chase. Why was it interesting? Why I like the, the French, the Parisian Ministry of Magic compared, because at this point we had seen the American Ministry of Magic in New York and the one in London. Now, we didn't see a whole lot of the one in London, fair, but the colors were so much more vivid and, like, considered like it was almost more of an art piece well the one in the americas was kind of bland kind of just felt like grand central station almost especially with like the big clock mm. in the middle and all the clockwork imagery and just the muted browns and grays of the industrial like aesthetic going to what felt for all the world like some kind of magical art gallery in paris was just such a like a breath of fresh air it was just watching it and being like oh wow there's like color and like art design behind these shots this is amazing mm. number six jude law is dumbledore and seeing hogwarts again there was a little part of me that went oh when I, I i finally saw it on screen and it just felt like we've been away for so so long and the whole audience i think actually just made a little sound when that, that turned up which shows that there is still direct links to our emotions with this stuff but you can fuck around with it too much and actually, honestly, that because we saw Hogwarts mostly from Lita's eyes in the flashbacks, it seemed mean at the uh, like you know sometime around nineteen eighteen when she was in at Hogwarts, just like full of bullies and not much else. But Jude Law as Dumbledore has like genuine screen presence. I think I actually fan cast him before he was actually officially cast. So it's not quite on the same level as Benedict Cumberbatch as strange, but uh, it's, it's there. And I really liked his understated presence. And particularly the scene, the, the flashback scene with Newt and the Boggart. I loved that yeah. moment because the idea of it turning into your greatest fear and it's just a desk for writing and then he turns it into a dragon made out of those components was just that was such like that was the one good character beat but we already knew that about newt so it yeah. didn't matter but it was very just joyously represented in a way that was compelling and imaginative and unlike 90 percent of the rest of the film and it's, it's, it's i hadn't even thought about that but the fact that he turns it into a fantastic beast is like you're turning it into something that would scare a lot of other kids mm, yeah. absolutely and, and yeah, oh. uh, number five would be James Newton Howard's score. Very specifically, there's a piece of music that sounds exactly like the uh, core theme from um, To the Moon. Uh, and it's called uh, Newt Says Goodbye to Tina.
Well, the best thing about scores is sometimes you can just separate them from the film, and you might be able to listen to the score and enjoy the score on its own. The way that、um, uh, the one of my absolute favourite scores of all time is Lady in the Water, but I could not give a toss about the film. And、uh, Batman v Superman,、uh, you know, with the benefit of time, the actual score by、uh, Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL is really awesome.、Uh, it's just that it took me a while to really warm to it because it was associated with something that I felt was genuinely harmful to the series. Speaking of which,、mm-hmm. uh, and the end credits as well that、uh, James Newton Howard、uh, put together was, were really nice, and I'll put them at the end of this podcast.、Uh, number four, Yates's direction for several emotional scenes. It felt delicate, and uh, uh, I, I liked. How quiet and how they brought it down, and I really could have done with a lot more of them.、Uh, number three, the costuming. Aside from the overabundance of plain suits, honest trailers noticed that there were a hell of a lot of men in grey suits, and it was kind of dull to watch quite so many of them. And all the women in luxurious nineteen thirties dresses. That was that was gorgeous to see. And、uh, Newt's waistcoats and just his general odd way of dressing, and, and even Grindelwald's costume were arresting. Yeah, and for me, I so the 1920s is like one of my favorite eras for fashion. Oh yeah, so、um, 20s, not 30s. Yeah, well, I,、uh, I, I, back in the day when I was in undergrad, I actually did a little bit of like costume design for stage performances, and I did a lot of like 20s style things into the fashion. So seeing that made me really happy. My My favorite costume scenes actually from the first film when they go to the the speakeasy thing and they get the like、oh, yeah. nice dresses, but so that was nice、stuff. to see. I will definitely agree that the, a lot of the costumes are pretty fantastic. Yeah, Colleen Atwood working overtime there.、Uh, number two, Eddie Redmayne's presence as Newt Scamander still absolutely adored him. I I really. Really like him in the first film. A lot of people were just like, "Oh, he's just like a dorky Doctor Who," or like he's this annoying Pokemon trainer. I find him really compelling for reasons that I will go into at a later date when we finally cover Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. We will do it, but I need the dust to clear on this series first. He's one of my favorite Magical World characters, and the fact that he was at least in this and felt. Like one of the only characters who was consistent with how he was written in the first one was a cause of relief when I compared it and contrasted it with everything else in the film.、Mm. He didn't do anything that was like, oh, for fuck's sake, why have they made him do this? And my number one is Zoe Kravitz as Lita Lestrange.、Uh, I don't think really that she put a foot wrong、uh, as an as an actress. The actual her winding up to attempt to clumsily kill Grindelwald by shooting him in the back was horribly blocked and horribly timed. That's mainly down to editing and direction. But the actual performance, I really liked. She's a tragic character who feels terrible about herself and clearly needed to make amends for that, which is what makes her being killed. Unceremoniously at the end, so much worse because you have a character bare their soul like that, and then Theseus dies, and that causes her to feel a lot of different things. That causes Newt to feel a lot of different things. We don't really need to care that much about Theseus, but we do care about these guys, and it means that she and Tina are both still alive, so that you can have that romance triangle and actually fucking explore it in the next one. He clearly likes her a lot, and the way she feels affection for him seems to come from a place of actually knowing him more than Tina does. 
So there was a lot there. And I I can still, after months of it happening, scarcely believe that she's dead and gone and that they wasted that character like that. The actual story that she gives, that part of it, if you take away Karma's really unsettling side of things and you make it less rapey and you change a couple of other things such as... I just wanted to be away from this kid for a moment. And then she switches babies while the mother just wanders off into the depths of the Titanic and leaves her baby for an appropriate span of two minutes so she can do the switcheroo. If you can kind of sweep that aside, the actual performance behind it is so heartfelt that she can keep that scene from becoming genuinely terrible. Because the actual, like, what's going on is genuinely terrible. The actual writing to it. And also the imagery of it. The, the, the haunting image of the, 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 the baby underwater. Again, like, Yates's direction really is on point there. The art direction. They, they got that. And they, they summarized Lita's regret as a character. And that made her fascinating to me. So just the whole hand wavy. Fuck her. Get rid of her. So that Newt can feel angry and need revenge for the next one. Fuck that. Fuck it. Because yeah. if, if his brother died, he could feel angry, but at the same time, confused. Because Lita's there and clearly loves him. And so does Tina. So there's lots of different emotions there. Now instead, it's just Theseus is angry and wants to kill Grindelwald. And I, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do with it, but it's less interesting than if they'd just killed Theseus or neither of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Queenie going is enough of a terrible loss. Yeah, she does a good job playing the character, but she is totally let down by the script. Yeah. And yeah, it just the whole suicide by Grindelwald at the end makes no sense for any motivation like at all like he's leaving like you can't fight him all the other auras have left mm. like why do you think i don't know it makes no sense did you know what would have been the better motive for her to do that by the way because it does come off as some kind of self-sacrificial moment if she was doing it to protect credence who in her mind is still her little brother yeah like she mm. looks at credence walking down and thinks no not this not to this man Oh, so close in so many ways and so far. Okay, yeah. so let's finish this one off. How might they proceed? Let us conjure three possible scenarios. Worst case, best case, and I suppose middle case. See, worst case, I would say somebody looks at the numbers and goes, do you know what? We're done. Really? Just leave it on that? But I don't even... Is that worst Is that the case? worst? Or is that no, middle case? No, that's... That might be middle case. <laughs> wor- wor- worst... Okay, yeah, Lauren? Mm, I don't know. I think I'd put that as best case. Because <laughs> they like, can't fuck it up more. Yeah, I just... I don't... I think that these movies are very wrong-headed and not... Uh, they don't pay any kind of respect to the source material, like for they what don't it's pay it any credence, if you will. They, they don't pay it any credence. That's good. <laughs> um, and it's just the idea that if they just stop now and they take the money for the production budget for the the next three that they were going to do, and make films that take place after the the original films that don't have anything to do with the characters or things, like set a modern day. Even, heck, American 
magical world that you can then contrast with the Fantastic Beast films and like where that culture went and uh but but <laughs> at the beginning after... have a like and this is what happened when Dumbledore faced Grindelwald well, and we're I mean, done with that moving on <laughs> we know what happened when Dumbledore faced Gris- Grindelwald who gives a shit like that's my thing if if and that should have been the remit when they started making this prequel movie to a scenario we already know the important salient points on. Absolutely, which is why I definitely think that the best case scenario for me would be to do to, to take the money, cut your losses, and do literally anything else. <laughs> That's the, so the, the worst case scenario is them to do any more Fantastic Beasts. The best case is them to do... Not Something that's not Fantastic Beasts. Is there a middle scenario for you? So the middle scenario would have to be how can we, what can we do with these movies to make them good going forward? Okay, well, then, and, tell you what, put a pin in that because I'm going to, yeah. that's going to be connected with mine. So, like, you hold on for a second. Sharon, have you got a best and a worst? I just, the, they're not wildly different from Lauren's, I don't think. Okay. I, I suppose the. So your best case is new. It. Yeah, give up on the Fantastic Beasts thread if you're going to do more magical world films. Do something that's not connected with the modern era that you don't feel obliged to plat links into that Mm -hmm. will put you on tracks that you can't possibly get to a a satisfactory outcome of. Mm -hmm. Um, And stop... Okay, here's my best case scenario. Stop letting Joanne write them. She's not a screenplay writer. that's what I was going to get to. Seven of the eight Harry Potter films, you can talk about how Deathly Hallows was in fact one film, but okay, it's it's seven, um, were written, were adapted by Steve Clovis, who's got a producer role on this film, which means he was right fucking there. He was there in the shadows, and Joe was like, Steve, how's it going? Working hard on this script. And Steve was like, ah, yeah, okay. So, best case scenario... Whatever you do, whichever direction you go in, you continue along the 1920s route, you go to do new stuff, you go and do a film that's set one year before uh, Harry Potter, you go to the Marauders, you do anything else. Joe writes the story. Steve Clovis adapts it. He's really fucking good at it. He's really good at it. He knows his Harry Potter and he can take Joe's convoluted mess of a book like, actually, I was going to say, uh, Order of the Phoenix. That's the one film he didn't do. Michael Goldenberg managed to adapt her thickest, most convoluted book, Order of the Phoenix, the least focused, and turned it into maybe the most focused of all the Potter films. Like, there's almost no fat. It's, like, it's really, it's remarkably lean, even though it's still epic. And that's a genuine feat. Joe, it's her world. I do not begrudge her creating these new stories at all. But we have actually seen directly that the first one she made, people didn't like all that much. The second one she made is a disaster. If she does it a third time, it is simply because no one will say no to her. To wit, she is hurting her own story. George Lucas did exactly the same thing with the prequels and... The moment he let go of Star Wars, suddenly it got amazingly good. As always, your mileage may vary regarding Star Wars, but it is at least safe to say that when Disney took over, the critical acclaim went up, as did the box office. 
And to date, both of these have plummeted from where Harry Potter was. Deathly Hallows 2 scored 96% freshness and took in 1.3 billion. Crimes of Grindelwald is at 37% and took in 653 million. Yeah, I mean, I... I definitely would agree with that, the idea of having somebody who already has like a dedicated track record of being able to adapt these kind of collections of scenes that work together in a lot of the books Mm. and like be able to parse out the things that aren't necessarily like required for the story to move forward and compacting it into like a movie going format, like that kind of adaptation skill is really sorely needed. So I, I definitely think that's a good observation. Yeah. So that's if they do a new thing, if they stay in the old, uh, if they if they do the Marauders, anything from following forwards, Joe should not directly write the screenplay and no one else touches it. That would be crazy. Yeah, agreed. Okay. She mentioned in some of the special features that the process of writing, I, I'm not sure whether she was talking about the books or the screenplays, but frankly, it works for both, is that she she does all of her stuff. And then she said, and then the editor comes in and, you know, kicks the tyres. Really? Is that all you're letting your editor do, Joe? Because that might be part of the problem. <sighs> if, if this had the same problem that uh, um, the last four of her books had in the Potter series, it would have been sprawlingly long, and kind of tonally higgledy-piggledy between levity and darkness, but still very satisfying. She writes a lot in her stories, and the difficulty is boiling it down. Now, as it turns out, that a lot that she writes is catnip to a lot of people. They love reading those books, and there's to them, even what I would consider to be flab is delicious. Mm. So that's that's fine but it doesn't work in on cinema and clearly in this the problem is not there's too much of a good thing or too much of an okay thing it's there's too much of a bad thing and very little of a good thing but this is part of the beauty of adapting a very lengthy and dense and descriptive book into a film that a set designer and a director and a, a screenplay writer with the right set of skills can take the essential points from the story and put them in the script and then take all of that surrounding flavor and world building and put it in visually so you don't have to describe everything because it's there in the background it's there in the world that's what making films out of books grants you Mm. Mm -hmm. And it it feels the books, the way that she writes in particular, feels a lot like what they call in movies, like finding the story in the edit or like finding the movie in the edit rather than having some kind of like premeditation on how you're going to be doing things like it very specifically. And that ends up being potentially problematic. Yeah. It's if you haven't got like got a solid story to begin with, you might find that there is no movie in the edit. Indeed. There is just a collection of scenes. And plus yeah. there's a there's a tone mismatch, mm. which we've mentioned before, in the childlike silliness in some of the surrounding uh, ideas and doing and stuff language. because it's cool exactly which is fine in the early ones, but as the books get gradually more adult and more impact they have to exist in a world where these silly things like ghosts are there and could change things drastically yeah okay so you were uh lauren you were talking about a medium case scenario so what what would that be for you 
Oh, I definitely think that the medium case would be that they decide to keep pushing forward with one to three films in this series mm-hmm. and try to figure out a way to make it not worse. Uh, and uh, they would almost have to do the opposite of what they did in this film, where the first film was like pretty middle of the road, like had some good stuff, had some bad stuff, but like some character growth, good acting, good representation. A rump. And a rump, yes, as you put it. And then this film like directly like drives so much of that characterization into the dirt. Important. They have to find a way in the next film to twist that or change it in such a way as to make it like make this film somehow better mm. in retrospect, Fuck which I yeah, think. Jesus. Now there's yeah. <laughs> well, for a start, you'd have to show a lot of those scenes that we said weren't there and we need to actually strengthen those decisions that were made here. Yeah. And the only the only even like filmic example of this i can even remotely think of is how um captain america the winter soldier made iron man 2 slightly better in retrospect because of some of the like big universe reveals that happen in it oh you mean gary shandling that there's a, there's <laughs> a, a nice little pin. bit more but yeah, yeah. there's it also it, made just, first yeah. avenger better Yes. Yes, it did. Yeah. It did. Yeah, I was. I was and the not Avengers better, which was already fantastic. Fan of the first yeah. Avenger, and then after Winter Soldier, I went back and watched it again, and went, "Oh, yeah." Yeah, I think the the films that I compared it to while I watched it most were Phantom Menace and the third Hobbit film, because the second Hobbit film is getting all over the place. The third Hobbit film was the one where Peter Jackson was just sat there going. Oh, I don't know what, what to do. do I put in this? Like, there's even like restrictions that the Tolkien estate won't let him talk about this, that, or the other. And Fran and Pepper are desperately trying to work out a story here. They don't have the time, and it felt like like way too much world building and establishing stuff we already know, and the political ramifications of, of Phantom Menace, and way too much fucking around and firework shows of The Hobbit mm-hmm. um, Part Three. Ooh. And, like, that dreary, dark tone was there as well from The yes, Hobbit 3. Yes, this is true. I have a worst-case scenario. Yeah. They listen, inverted commas, to the uh, people who are criticising it because of Queenie's turn. Mm-hmm. And they go, aha, she was a secret assassin all along. No. Well, exactly. Oh. That's, like, worst-case scenario. <laughs> They'd never do it. It's so bad. Something about the fact that they were like, oh, yeah, there's five of these. Uh, uh, back in the day seems to correlate very kind of perfectly with by the time you get to film five of fantastic beasts it's almost like daniel radcliffe and emma watson and rupert grint will be exactly 19 years older than when we last left them Mm. so it'll time perfectly that will allow you to fiscally keep the tax working exactly right on these returns every year uh, to um, to just s- seamlessly go into what happens to their kids and have a modern-day uh, uh, film series. I, I am putting a 99% likelihood on whatever happens with Fantastic Beasts. At some point in the next 10 years, we're going to go back to Potter Senior and, uh, and their kids. I'll put an 85% likelihood on Daniel Radcliffe saying no. Yeah, and I'll put <laughs> a, uh, a 95% uh, uh, likelihood on the dump truck full of money that gets driven up to his mansion being so big that it accidentally crushes the mansion. Mm. And then they have to buy him a new one. But it's okay because they only need a few of those giant piles of money that fall off. This is true. And I don't... 
don't, I can't see Emma Watson wanting to come back, and I can't see them what being they able want, to find Rupert Grint. What they want is immaterial. This is movies. <laughs> It'll happen. It'll happen, folks. Okay. Um, but what I think is most important, I honestly can't see them uh, finishing Fantastic Beasts well. What I would hope is that they at least finish it quickly. I would like, I would prefer them to do a Fantastic Beast three, and then maybe do something else for another movie, and do another something else for a movie. Maybe even have a Marauders movie, even though it's establishing stuff that we already know. But just like play for time a little bit in a way that isn't stuff that's horrible, like. Bring the fun back to the wizarding world. This is the opposite of fun. And nobody is enjoying themselves in the cinema. <laughs> There's a time and a place for a good time and it's not here. Sidebar, by the way, my favourite Harry Potter film is probably the least enjoyable. Deathly Hallows 1. Possibly because it's juxtaposed so brilliantly against them. But if you remember the film 6, Half-Blood Prince, that is a dark film with a dark tone. It's very dark the whole way through. But it's also fun and funny a lot of the way through. All that Lavender Brown business happens there. Mm-hmm. All of the, I am the chosen one. Boom. Sorry, okay. All, and the like, luck potion. Yeah. It's got so much little bits that just keep you going through the shadowy dark times. That's what this film needed to be, and it totally wasn't. But then when they finally get to, now we're doing films in the modern day, and, and it's actually stuff that takes place 19 years or whatever after Harry and Hermione and Ron left Hogwarts. Here is what actually needs to happen in a best-case scenario. Joe needs to let it go. Joe needs to do what Lucas did and just go, okay, I am trusting this to you guys. Get good writing teams in here. And they get smart, sensible writers on who are more attuned to the current climate. And they make something like The Force Awakens, and some, which will remind everyone why they loved Harry Potter in the first place. Which, frankly, if they just fuck off for several years now, might work out financially better for them. Because the more poison they pour into this well, the less likely people are going to want to drain those cups when they get to the, you know, we're coming back from this. Star Wars did really well by waiting a long while. What Star Wars did not do was go, right, so that third prequel sucked, but two years from now, we're going back to Hogwarts. They waited, and waiting's important. Let people miss it. But even if you don't, even somehow if you don't, it's got to be writing that challenges the shit side of the wizarding world. The villain needs to actually be kind of a, a, a Legend of Korra villain, someone who's kind of right. So, like Someone who's like, you know what? Wizards are fucking racists. Wizards enslave house elves. We need to change that shit, and we need to change it now. And the whole, like, these kids need to be, like, fiery. Not all of them, but just, like, some of them need to be, like, this is bullshit, and your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. It needs to be a moving forwards of this antiquated fucking series of systems that feels like it's stuck in a racist past and a LGBT-excluding past and a not really understanding what people on the spectrum are like apart from Newt. It's, it needs to be handled by people that aren't Joan. And she needs to be able to be humble enough to go, you know what, I will definitely contribute, but I'm going to let a lot of other people write these stories. Mm. Yeah. It's just my suggestion. And I think that that might save it. If she holds onto it like a dragon with a hoard of gold, uh, it's going to get worse. 
they're going to poison the well to the point where people are like, you're going to go and see the new Harry Potter film? The what? Is Harry Potter in it? No. I mean, Magical World. And uh, is it going to be like that Dimbledore film? And then people are just going to, like you yourself said, I, did, I decided not to go to uh, Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. If people are deciding that now, that means this film is a disaster. If you keep doing this over and over again, you hurt your brand. Yeah, I can't... I can't say anything. I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I was thinking about how, like, it, there is a very Lucasian thread here, like mm. the story of having to just finally give up what you have. I mean, she's even technically doing prequels. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, like, she, she's clearly very aware that people are hating on her now, and she's clearly angry about that. But um, it... it gets better if you let go it got better for lucas and she's made her billions she doesn't need to do this for work she needs to do this to satisfy her muse but you can still create without having total absolute control Mm -hmm. in fact you can create better if you don't Yeah, frankly, she needs to go and sort out a new IP, new books and something else go in a different direction let this be yeah it sounds like uh, when Ross said in Frasier, Captain Kirk has taken hold of the bridge and has gone insane. <laughs> it was the one where Frasier was ill. Mm, yes. So, okay. Lauren, rather than pimping a podcast for this time, can you tell our listeners something good that they can watch or read that isn't Fantastic Beasts, but is kind of in that wheelhouse? So you you posed this question to me before we got on, which was I appreciate. But the only film that I can think about for recent history that like has that sense of wonder, has the kind of like live action element, has like a deeper world that's hinted at, is honestly Mary Poppins Returns. Nice pick. I I love that movie. Like it came out on Blu-ray fairly recently. I snagged a copy as soon as it did, and I mean. I grew up with the original Mary Poppins, and my teaching style might be somewhat related to her stern but kind way. Um, and so, so you are kind, but extremely firm. But extremely firm. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. But there's something that. about it that is just so. The, the Mary Poppins Returns is like it's it's a very different feel from the first film. It feels more like like the first film is way more episodic this one actually has more of like a thread but the music's really good and the directing's really good and the art style's really good and there's just the scene at the end with dick van dyke makes me cry every time Mm. and it is just so much there's so much more heart and there's so much more whimsy and so much more imagination that it's the movie that i just kept thinking about whenever you asked me that question yeah and um, at the time it was released, everyone on film Twitter was talking about Into the Spider-Verse, and rightly so. It's a wonderful film. And everyone mm-hmm. who wasn't on film Twitter was just watching Aquaman. And mm-hmm. then the, any scraps were being cleaned up by Bumblebee, and deservedly so, but clearly not enough scraps, because Paramount recently said, oh, we're going to bring back more Bayhem next time. No, that's, that's, not, that's not what you do from that. That's not your take home. You need to wait. Mm-hmm. Be more patient. People will be receptive to your next one. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that was our second favorite film of last year after Into the Spider-Verse. We had an amazing December. Yeah, it was. I even saw that film in Colorado while I was away for the holidays with my girlfriend meeting her family. 
And like her mother took us to go see that film. And I'm sitting there and like, they didn't have the same history with the original film. And I am just open jaw, just, just mesmerized watching this. And then at the end, just breaking down. I'm like, Mm. this was so, so meaningful for me. That is definitely my answer to that question. Mm. Uh, Sharon, would you have uh, something that people can watch instead of Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald? Uh, Well, this is a read, not a watch, but I would highly recommend Diane Duane's Young Wizards series. I don't even know how to describe it. I am going back to the first book. What's the first book called? So You Want to Be a Wizard. So You Want to Be a Wizard. And it's about a girl who finds a manual called So You Want to Be a Wizard in her local library in amongst the So You Want to Be a Secretary, So You Want to Be a Policeman, So You Want to Be a Firefighter, and takes it home and learns to be a wizard. And it's, it's kind of, it's Harry Potter in America, I suppose. Would you also recommend Equal Rights by Terry Pratchett? Oh, yes. I I recommend that all the time anyway. (laughs) Equal Rights and Monstrous Regiment, if you're going to go into the Pratchett stuff. Pratchett can be quite intimidating. So if you tell people, I'll just read one book. Yeah. That's uh, probably a better way to get into it because there's 40 of them, aren't there? Absolutely. Everybody's got to start somewhere. Yeah. Uh, And uh, rather than uh, going too far, I'm going to say, folks, maybe go back and watch my recommend Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Maybe enough time has passed that when you see it again, you'll be like, you know what? Actually, now that I've seen the second one, this one is really quite nice. And if you just take it as its own isolated adventure, and maybe if you can try to blank what's going to happen from your mind, after this podcast finishes, that's what I'm going to go and watch because I want to stop feeling this. Does anybody have any swooping evil venom? Yeah. (laughs) Want to just take away the bad memories. (laughs) Leave it all the good. I honestly don't know what's going to happen in film three. But like I said, I do kind of hope that 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 film three is that it all ends film because we know roughly what's going to happen. Credence fights Dumbledore. Dumbledore kills Credence. Or Grindelwald kills Credence. But Credence ain't getting through this fucking film series. Mm -hmm. And then... Dumbledore fights Grindelwald, Dumbledore wins, Grindelwald is not killed and gets locked up in Nuremberg for 70 years. Mm. Not very interesting. Dumbledore gets Elder Wand. Yeah. Dumbledore gets Elder Wand and goes, oh, that's nice, and then goes and waits in Hogwarts for Harry Potter to be born. (laughs) (laughs) It does sort of feel a little bit like this whole endeavour is just to explain why Dumbledore has the Elder Wand. But, I mean, yeah. like, he has it, which kind of tells us what's going to happen. Exactly. He has it, all right? He has, he has, he has! He's got it. There's not really much more complications that you can add to, for, by adding two more films between this final confrontation that are going to make much of a difference. Mm. I feel like you can only do worse. You can only make it worse by continuing along these lines. But if you somehow make it a character piece, go back to that. Don't worry about it being a mystery anymore. Just make it all about, like, make it Civil War. Every character in that film needs to have a stake in how this thing finishes off. And Grindelwald needs to actually make his case in a way that isn't just elimination of all the muggles. Actually go into this guy. Make it Civil War. And it's possible, anything's possible, that it could somehow turn out all right. Okay. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. 
And there's just time to thank our $15 sponsors who get a shout out every week. Gratitudicus Totalus 2. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dachler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Also thank you to Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, and Daniel Salguero. This episode was recorded a while ago. I still stand by pretty much everything that was said within it, and I'm sure Lauren and Sharon do too. Since the time of recording, the third film has been greenlit, it's now shooting, and Steve Clovers has indeed joined the team in a scripting capacity, so that's a good thing. What comes of that third film? We don't know, but I did remember one particular scene. This is an excerpt from Stephen Fry's as usual wonderful reading of the Harry Potter books. This is from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. It's during the wedding scene. And this is where Joe directly conflates the Deathly Hallows symbol with the swastika in terms of how perhaps a German might react to seeing someone wearing it on a necklace at a wedding. In this case, Victor Crumb is Bulgarian. Crumb glowered over the top of his drink, watching Xenophilius, who was chatting to several warlocks on the other side of the dance floor. If he was not a guest of Fleur's, said Crumb, I would duel him, here and now, for wearing that filthy sign upon his chest. Sign, said Harry, looking over at Xenophilius too. The strange triangular eye was gleaming on his chest. Why? What's wrong with it? Grindelwald. That is Grindelwald's sign. Grindelwald? The dark wizard Dumbledore defeated? Exactly. Crumb's jaw muscles worked as if he were chewing. Then he said, Grindelwald killed many people. My grandfather, for instance. Of course, he was never powerful in this country. They said he feared Dumbledore, and rightly, seeing how he was finished. But this... He pointed a finger at Xenophilius. This is his symbol. I recognize it at once. Grindelwald carved it into a wall at Durmstrang when he was a pupil there. Some idiots copied it onto their books and clothes, thinking to shock, make themselves impressive, until those of us who had lost family members to Grindelwald taught them better. Crumb cracked his knuckles menacingly and glowered at Xenophilius. Harry felt perplexed. It seemed incredibly unlikely that Luna's father was a supporter of the dark arts, and nobody else in the tent seemed to have recognised the triangular, rune-like shape. Are you, um, quite sure it's Grindelwald's? I am not mistaken, said Crumb coldly. I walked past that sign for several years. I know it well. Well, there's a chance said Harry, that Xenophilius doesn't actually know what the symbol means. The Lovegoods are quite unusual. 
Now, statistically speaking, we have listeners who have tattooed the Deathly Hallows symbol on their bodies. So clearly this symbol means a lot of things to a lot of people. But it also suggests that great care must be taken with the further positioning of the character of Gellert Grindelwald. So we're going to end on uh, the uh, uh, end credits, which is remarkably sprightly for such a miserable film. (laughs) And uh, we hope you've enjoyed this. For God's sake, we hope you've enjoyed it more than the film. And we will be back here at some point to go back through it. If there's a final film that rounds it off, we'll also do a separate show on Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. But, uh, but we'll be back on in the magical world at some stage. It's never been lower, folks. After Chamber of Secrets, I was like, well, those two films in no way compare to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I am now desperately sad that Lord of the Rings is ending, and I don't know what's going to be next. And then Azkaban came out, and I was like, oh, that was actually really, really, really good. And then they just got better and better and better after that. So the lowest it's ever been before was, oh, that was a bit disappointing. That in no way compares to how fucking low and poisoned and crushed and ruined it is right now. It can only get better. (sighs) Let's hope I don't regret those ill-chosen words in a few years' time. Anyway, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School School of of Witchcraft Witchcraft and Wizardry is out. out.